Live from Chatterbox Sports Studios, it's Off the Bench with Tom Brenneman. Well, good morning, good morning, and a pleasant good Monday morning to each and every one of you. We welcome you to Off the Bench presented by United Dairy Farmers. I'm Tom Brenneman with a cast of thousands right here in the studio and in the chat. But look who is back in the saddle today. Our main man, Casey McAllister. Welcome back, young man. Your first day in the saddle as a happily married man, fresh off your honeymoon. Give us a full report. It was a great time. I loved it. Loved every minute of it. It was beautiful. Best day of my life. Um, it was exactly what we all had hoped for. So I'm happy to be back. Um, it, uh, during my honeymoon, Ellie got called up. So maybe I need to go back to Florida and, and uh, CES will get called up. Maybe we can true. work something out with the office, do something about that. Um, That's a good point, but, oh, I think we ought to have an entire off the bench trip back down to where you were just around Destin, Florida, right? That's oh, pretty yeah. close to the panhandle. Weather's really nice there. A little northern Florida action, right? Right. Yeah. It's so the beaches there are white sands. Yep. And I don't know if anyone's ever been to a white sand beach, but they're very soft. Yeah. Very soft sand. And the water was clear you could see all the way down to your feet yeah you could see all the fish swimming around you so you could go out there every morning and just get on a pair of goggles and do not snorkel snorkel but you could pseudo snorkel right and it was a lot of fun it was a great relaxing time and i still got to watch the show on the beach which was a lot of fun um, well, I tell you, there there are there are tens of thousands all over the United States and all over the globe, sitting on beaches, tuned into off the bench in the chat. Oh yeah, there's a fake Tom Brenneman in the chat today. We thought it was you. It's not me, but that's okay. I mean, if that's what someone wants to do and join the chat, I mean, you know, we're not welcoming. I mean, we we're welcoming to all. Sir Boy Wonder says, "Welcome back, Casey," and by the hype, that is all Sir Boy Wonder has has written for a week. <laughs> by the hype by the hype i mean it's like his keyboard is stuck well i think after your your don't buy the hype he he's he's just complete opposite he's he's not listening to you at all you know how you can create shortcuts on an iphone tom you just type one thing and then it just populates an entire message that's oh, yeah. that's definitely what he's doing with this definitely because he's out and about i mean you know he's working he's a um, technology specialist and so uh he's he's bouncing around Paul, good morning. Tom, how are you today? I'm doing great. You've got your front runner Reds garb on. I see. You I'm going to throw any of that before I'm throwing a flag on that. Showed up. I'm throwing a flag on that. I've been wearing this all season. In fact, I've been wearing it so much that my family told me last week that I I started to not wear it to the Reds game because I've worn it to every game I've been to. And they were like, "Well, you're not wearing your Reds polo down to the down to the stadium." I said, "Well, you know what? Thought I'd change it up. No, nope. put it back on. Here we go. Okay, Elliot." What's going on? It's a great morning. Monday morning. Weather, not so great. But the vibes are high, Tom. Beating the Cardinals two out of three in St. Louis. I feel like that doesn't happen very much. Hasn't happened recently. So I'm very happy, very excited right now. And Jacob, good morning. Welcome back. Good morning to you. Yeah, good, good weekend. Good weekend. No complaints from me. Got your TCU colors on there? I do. I do. I am proudly wearing my TCU pullover here today because they are the only university, the only one. My daughter, who's a TCU student, reminded me of this. 
Yesterday, TCU, the only school to go to the college football playoff to reach the men's NCAA basketball tournament, and now to reach the College World Series in baseball. That is getting it done. Elite athletic institution. Elite. And it's because they have a president, or they call him a chancellor, that is an Ohio guy, Cleveland, Ohio guy. He understands the importance of athletics at that higher learning institution. Go Horn Frogs. All right, we come your way Monday through Friday, 10 a. to 12. P. And that's Eastern time. You can join us on YouTube, the Chatterbox Sports page. Please uh, do so, or you can do uh, join us in podcast form. Just search off the bench with Tom Brenneman. You're dialed in. All in all, as Elliot mentioned, a really good weekend for the Red Legs. And let's be honest now. When the season began and you saw a three-game series in St. Louis, you're thinking, okay, how about just one win? Just don't get swept. But my, oh, my, how expectations are changing the Cardinals stink, plain and simple. I mean, they stink. Only the Nationals and the Rockies have a worse record in the National League. So the Reds take it to them. They went two out of three over the weekend. It began uh, Friday night. They lost. But then comes Andrew Abbott, another one, brought up from the minor leagues. Left-hander, his second major league starting, just like the first one, didn't allow a single run. In nearly six innings of work, Reds won at 8-4. Then yesterday, the return of Hunter Green. He missed his last start with a hip injury. They backed it up a week. Goes five and a third innings, allows three runs, struck out nine, got a no decision. And look, the Ellie De La Cruz thing is just in high gear. Two hits on base yesterday four times and scored the go-ahead run on a ground ball, flashing his blazing speed. He had joked the day before that he's the fastest man in the world. The Reds win the game four to three. Is he the fastest man in the world? It's the fastest man in baseball. I know that. That is, it was incredible. Well, we'll talk more about that in a minute because we have the highlight and everything else to bring up. So, All right. okay, we'll get more into that in a minute. Tonight, the uh, road trip continues in Kansas City, and boy, you talk about stink! Holy Moses! Reading up on the Royals, brutal. Luke Weaver against Zach Granke tonight in the series opener. The TV voice of the Royals, our good friend Ryan Lefevre, will join us at 11 o'clock to preview the series. Reds are four back. They're four games under 500. Kansas City, 18 and 47. We know their pain. The Reds were there last year. Andrew McCutcheon picked up his 2,000th career hit yesterday. One of just 291 players all time to reach that mark. And the fifth among active players behind Miguel Cabrera, Joey Votto, Nelson Cruz, and Elvis Andrus. The Mets owner, Stephen Cohen, comes out in a long interview and says no major changes are coming. He's not changing the manager, Buck Showalter, the general manager, not the players. Nope. Despite the fact that the Mets have the highest payroll in Major League Baseball history, and yet they are one of the worst teams in baseball right now. Four games under 500, a whopping nine and a half back in the National League East. FC Cincinnati. Starting to wonder if they're a good road team. We know they're really good at home. I'm starting to wonder how good they are on the road. They play to a 1-1 draw in Vancouver on Saturday night. Now FCC still has the best record in the MLS. They've only lost once, won 12 times, four ties. 
The team doesn't play again until June 21st. Why are they waiting that long to play again? Anybody know the answer to that question? Might be a bye week. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, they've played a lot of games here. As a yeah, I think, it's, I think it's just an off week. Casey, you're the big soccer guy around here. Do you think that it's a, a legitimate question that, look, most teams in most sports are better at home. But they look like a different team on the road than at home. Am I right about that? Yeah. Um, well, yes and no. I mean, like, they, I think they've had, out of the whole season, they've had their worst games away. That is for sure. And I think. But even still, they've only lost yeah, one. They've only lost one. And, they, yeah. and I hate to pull this card. But go ahead. You're going to pull it anyway, so go ahead. They probably should have won that. They were winning one nothing in the, in the 89th minute, and then they got called for a penalty, and it ended up as a draw. So, I mean, they were they were right there. They were two minutes from winning the, winning the match. But anyway, go ahead. That's pretty much what I was going to say. I yeah. mean, it's, it's not like they played to a 4-4 draw, and it's like they're conceding four now, times. Now, despite that, they didn't play great that game. No. Even though, even though they, they – probably should have won they didn't play great but that's kind of like the makings of some of these good teams in a lot of sports even though you play bad you still find ways to win that's right and they they just kind of got unlucky with the penalty at the 89th minute that that's what it really boils down to. casey i gotta interrupt you real not interrupt them but Go i gotta gotta ask you something here real quick alex wallace in the chat points out alex mcallister does that does that feel weird to read for the first time in the chat uh, yeah, that, that is very yeah, strange. Okay. Um, right. I've not seen other, I've seen it written out, but I've not seen other people address my now wife as Alex McAllister. Wow. There you go. So that was, uh, it'll take some getting used to. That's something to get used to. The player sure. formerly known as Mouse Cop says last week was the worst week in the history of Chatterbox. Ooh. Mm. With Reed in the producer's that. seat. I do feel like I'm back home over here. It was a stressful week sitting to my left. I just, I just always, it, it was fine. It went fine. The microphone levels were a little off. The show, the, the, the like, when I would hit go live at nine fifty eight, for some reason it just wouldn't go live till ten o two. There were things that were just, I was always sitting on pins and needles, Casey, and it feels good to be back home. It's all right. It's okay. We're here. We're we are rocking and to, rolling. We are back to normal. You guys did great while I was gone. I, I sat and watched every morning. Made sure you guys were up and ro rolling. One morning, if we hadn't called you, we would not have been up and rolling. Yeah, that was it, was, it was tough. We had some problems that we had never seen in the studio before. The cameras weren't working. <laughs> the internet wasn't connecting. I mean, nothing was yeah, going right. Yeah. At, at, we had never seen three different problems happen in the studio, and all of them happened on the same morning at about 9.51. <laughs> Casey got that call with the bedhead. <laughs> yeah. I mean, luckily, I, I hadn't already gone to the beach yet. I was getting ready to walk out the door. I'm like, Alex, can we hang on a second? <laughs> oh, so she was thrilled about that. Sorry. No, it's good. All right. Uh, elsewhere, the NBA Finals continue tonight. Denver, a chance to wrap it up. It would be the first title ever in the franchise history of the Denver Nuggets. They lead Miami three games to one. The game is in Denver. So trying to wrap it up at home. Tip-off set for 8.30. And did you see the ending of the Canadian Open? Can we roll this, please? We have it all. This was unbelievable, right? One of the greatest moments, they say, in Canadian sports history. 72-foot eagle putt. This is unbelievable to win. In 
Maple Leaf flag. This is Nick Taylor. Look at this. Good pace. This is to win. Are you serious? Bang, bang. Oh, my goodness. Glorious and free. The crowd went ballistic. And understandably so. As Taylor, that was the fourth hole of a playoff to win the company's, to win the country's, I beg your pardon, golf championship. He is the first native Canadian. As we'll scroll this up here, Paul, a little bit. First native Canadian to win since 1954. But here's another little nugget. The player that won it in 1954 was born in England and then moved to Canada, became a citizen of that country. The last Canadian-born player to win the Canadian Open was in 1914. They asked him afterwards. So he sinks a 72-foot putt, celebrates, throws a putter in the air, whole nine yards, right? And they asked him afterwards when he got into the press conference room, you know, what do you remember? He says, I totally blacked out. I have no idea what I did when the putt went in. I can't wait to go back and watch There's more to this story, which we will cover later, about what happened in the ensuing celebration, if you didn't see this. So, it's it's pretty funny, actually. Um, We have Tim McGee coming up here shortly, uh, former Bengal great, to talk about minicamp and how times have changed and how Zach Taylor, you know, he said through a lot of studies, backing off his players. He doesn't want a lot of – they're going to be, if not the least number of hours on the field during OTAs and minicamp of any team in the league, they're right there. And uh, Zach Taylor, you know, has created a culture down there. This is what he thinks is the right way to do it. It's hard to argue with them. They've won back-to-back AFC North titles. Uh, and, of course, they played in back-to-back AFC championship games. But minicamp is a little bit different animal altogether because it's mandatory. You have to be there. The OTAs, you know, for the veteran guys, you show up, great. If you don't, some other guys, they have an injury. They don't have to be there, as we've talked a lot about Jonah Williams in particular. But, um, but now you got to be there because this is the last three or four days where it's mandatory, and then you basically get the rest of June and all of July off until training camp starts. So, Tim McGee ready to go? We got him dialed in? Yep. All right, here he is, former Bengal great, friend of the program. We love Tim McGee. Nobody tells it like it is like the man from Cleveland, Ohio, via the Tennessee Volunteers. Your volunteers, Tim, I mean, they got it going on down there. Every time I open up, the internet, it sounds like they're signing more and more big-time college recruits. Are they going to finally get some consistency back down there again? You know, I, I hope so, considering we had a phenomenal year, considering where we where we came from. Um, but uh, the football program is doing – it's on the upswing. And as long as it continues to stream up, we have the one of the best facilities in the country. And we have the best – one of the best stadiums in the country. And, and we have the best color combination in the country. And we have the best – voice in John Ward, the late great John Ward saying it's football time and everyone uses that, but they cut off that in Tennessee. So, you know, we, he should have trademarked that. And, and, and I'm, I'm pretty sure his family would have been really, really extremely happy. 
Um, one other thing I want to ask you about, which I've never gotten your, your, your thoughts on. What, what do you think about what's going on with Deion Sanders there at Colorado? Because, you know, there's been so much made about roster turnover. He's running guys off. He's bringing guys in. He was in the news again this morning where, you know, there are players, one kid from Florida, one kid from Michigan, a wide receiver from Florida, a, a defensive lineman from Michigan. These guys are being recruited by Georgia, Tennessee, Auburn, Alabama, Michigan, all of them. And Dion lands two more four-star guys. What do you think of, of what he's doing out there? You know what? There's two perspectives I have on that. Uh, number one, let's go with the positive first. Uh, consider he's turned the program around as far as hype is concerned. Uh, he's brought a lot of notoriety. He's brought you know a tremendous amount of talent, and he continues to do that. And in order, we know, in order to have a winning program, you're going to need talent. You're going to need the horses, and uh, whatever he's doing, he's doing it uh, within the framework of of the rules and. What, his likeness, of course, is is a huge advantage for him. You know, however, you know, if you're the kids there and if you're the university, I don't know if this is good for the spirit of the game. I don't know if this is good for college sports. Uh, but, um, you know, I guess there's a cost for, for success even at the college level. And he's bringing more of a free agent NFL mentality to the uh, University of Colorado. And he's changed a lot of things. And you know, um, it's but one can question. So, you know, for every pro, there's a con one can question. You know, he makes comments about the uh, the African-American uh, schools or HBCs and how they didn't have a, but one player drafted and they're not getting the notoriety. But, you know, you left it. Um, so, you know, he should, in my opinion, receive some criticism for that, because, you know, in order to fix it, you should have been there. You should have stayed there. However, um, you know, he felt like most coaches do. You know, they keep a mirror in their face and they, wa they watch out for, you know, yours truly first and, and, and first, second, third, fourth, and so on and so forth. So, you know, there's some positives in, in, at the University of Colorado. I know the uh, fan base got to be excited. The students got to be excited. But ultimately, they haven't played a game yet. So they're going to have to win some football games in order to get the respect that they feel they deserve. Oh, there's no doubt about that. All right, I, I want to get to now um, your recollections of let, – let, let's start from a perspective of a rookie. So these guys that the Bengals drafted, okay, and we've talked a lot about them, whether it's Murphy, the defensive lineman, Brown, the running back, uh, the two receivers, uh, that kind of thing. When, when you're a rookie and you come into town and you're staying in a hotel and they lay out the schedule for you and you're there for OTAs. Can you remember what that was like the first time you walked into an OTA as a rookie and, and the way you felt? Were you, were you confident? Were you nervous? Were you scared? Were you all the above? Um, well, we didn't have officials, official OTAs. We had, you better have your ass here. The, those were those were kind of the underwritten rules. You you better be here. Um, I, I don't I, as a first round pick. I, you know my career the way it started off in being drafted by the Bengals was a little different. I knew I didn't have the pressure. Say if I had gone somewhere and I I needed to have instant impact on the football team. I had Eddie Brown and Chris Collinsworth as starters, so you know I had a luxury pretty much of learning between two great players 
you know, and so I didn't have that pressure. So going into going into minicap in particular, uh, it was more of getting acclimated with the NFL speed and acclimated with the players or teammates, uh, the whole system. And, you know, for me, again, another thing that was great, uh, the, the great Walt Harris, who coached me at the University of Tennessee, and Bruce Cosler ran in pretty much the same, uh, very similar offense. So it was more just learning the terminology. And, and, and like I said, just starting off becoming, how, how do I become a pro? What type of career do I want? Do I want short-term, long-term? You know, wh what are my goals? And then you, you really come into minicamp, quite honestly, and you were like, you look and go, man, I've heard about this guy, and I've heard about that guy. And you go, hmm, that guy is really, really good. And then sometimes you go, hmm, that guy is overhyped, no doubt, no doubt about it. And then you just kind of plug uh, from a mental standpoint, point, you plug yourself in and say, okay, here's where I fit in and here's where I can grow. I see opportunity here, maybe not there. And, uh, you know, kind of get to know the staff a little bit and the ownership. So I don't think it was nerve. I wasn't nervous at all. I think it was more of looking at the opportunity and see where I could plug my talents in and, and, be, and feel comfortable. All right, well, well, let me take that a step further. I want to get into, you know, we've seen in the college game, um, as it has evolved, and, and there are other guys to get credit for it, I think Urban Meyer probably had as much to do with it as anybody, where you're starting to spread guys out a lot, right? Uh, not empty backfield, because in his offense, unlike some of the others, they ran the ball a lot. Um, but nonetheless, you, you'd spread them out. And take the kid from Purdue as an example, okay? You know, that's what they're doing. Wide open, a lot of empty backfield stuff. As a receiver, for this guy to be coming in, you mentioned when you walked in, you had Collinsworth and Eddie Brown, who were the starters. These guys who are walking in, these young receivers, they know that the, the, the Bengals have Chase, they have Higgins, and they have Boyd. So, you know, start with a playbook. Is it a significant, I mean, really significant uh, change Besides just the verbiage, but from, from a philosophy of walking from a college program, you know, whether it's Princeton or Purdue or Ohio State or Tennessee, is it a huge taxing difference to learn an NFL offense or this Bengal offense in particular? No, not at all. Uh, you're running pretty much a pro system. There are no more pro college systems anymore. They're intertwined now. Uh, what they're doing at Ohio State, you know, the, where it here, here's the funny part, Tom. It used to be frowned upon if a coach from the pros, the NFL, would take anything from the college coaches. It was it was kind of you look they look down on the college coaches as far as what they were doing because college coaches had to create. They didn't have the talent that the NFL coaches, and I'm talking about as a whole. So. I don't think the NFL was much of an adjustment for me in particular because we ran a very similar system. And nowadays, I mean, Zach Taylor at UC, he's probably running players plays from UC or philosophies from UC and the Rams and so on and so forth. So the college coaching group has kind of intertwined themselves to kind of think alike. And we know we always call it a copycat league and all that. And you know the success that the the Rams had, you know, with the with with Sean McVay, and then everybody, you know, that had a cup of coffee with him was hired as a head coach. And obviously, Zach has done, in particular, has done a wonderful job. But I don't think they have much adjustments now in spreading and creating matchups. And that's what 
offenses is all about. It's creating matchups. You know, you talk about Chase, you talk about Boarding, you talk about T. Higgins. I mean, you know what you're going to get. They're going to the best corner is going to single, and I've been saying this from day one since T. Higgins was actually drafted. The best corner is not going to cover Jamar Chase. The best corner is going to cover T. Higgins. Why? Because you're going to double Jamar Chase, and then you're going to put your slot corner in there, and you're going to hope for the best with Tyler Boyd. That's what you have to do. And as far as your, when you look at those philosophies, Tom, how do you attack them? You got to have some stud defensive ends that's limiting the time, the time for the quarterback to really process. When you look at the wide receivers they brought in, both of these young men, I guess, are just extraordinary athletes. Okay, there are a lot of great athletes. I mean, I think the football players, along with the basketball players, are the best athletes in the world. But these two guys, you know, l l let me start with a kid from Princeton. And I'm not asking you much about him in particular necessarily because I don't know how much you know about it. But w when a guy comes from a program like Princeton, do – do some people, you know, that are maybe in the NFL that came from Tennessee or came from LSU or came from wherever, do they sort of think, Princeton, are you kidding? Or do they just watch the guy and go, oh, okay, maybe he shouldn't have been at Princeton? <laughs> well, it's so funny because my daughter went to Princeton. All and, right, well, uh, so I, 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 you I, love Princeton then. <laughs> so it, it, it's funny because you, in the locker room, you do say Princeton. But you got to be very careful because you may be asking the guy for a job, you know, in, 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 the, in the distant future. So you you know he's going to be a smart. So that's going to happen. And, and I think I, I played with John Garrett. Yeah, John Garrett or Jason Garrett. John Garrett. And he went to Princeton. And, uh, you know, he was on the team. And obviously what him and his brother went on to do. So you know they have the mindset. You know that. And they're going to pretty much – work their behinds off to maximize their talent. So a guy, guys like them, they're not going to make mistakes. Coaches are going to absolutely love those guys. No question about it. <clears throat> but you are going to look at them and say, dude, I went to the University of Tennessee. Uh-uh, this ain't happening. No, you went. And, and even though you have the attitude towards a, 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 everyone, but small colleges, you're man, come on. You know, this, this guy can't, he, he cannot perform me. And yes, but you got to go out and compete, but you do kind of look down on those guys and make them pretty much earn everything they get. And once they earn it, they're just a part of the fraternity. Okay. Um, your thoughts on, because uh, look, when you played, the rules were very different, right? I mean, uh, Sam Weish or anybody else, when you came in for minicamp, there was hitting going on. Uh, there was a lot of hitting going on. Uh, now there will be very little, if any, hitting going on. Uh, and much has been made about Zach Taylor and, and his philosophy. And again, it's hard to argue with it. I mean, you know, they've been to back-to-back -back AFC championship games. But his philosophy compared to most of the NFL is to lighten the load on the players. As a player, I would assume you love it. But is there a part of you as a player that's going – Man, maybe we need a little bit of that mixed in. Here's what I think about that. You have to be very careful because you can't cookie cutter every single player on your roster. And what I mean by that, some players, myself, James Brooks, Eric Thomas, we came in 100% ready to go. Then there was other players I won't name, but they came in pretty much out of shape, so on and so forth. So 
you you it's it's an, it's a system where to treat everyone fairly you don't treat them treat them equally there has to be where you know there's certain individuals that do not train the way the coaches want them to train and they come in and you hear about them coming in they're not in shape they're not ready to play but i understand and i even agree with because ultimately what Zach is doing that I think is just absolutely smart. You need your horses in December and the NFL season, people could not even imagine. It's like being in multiple car accidents in one day and your body, because you have that S across your chest when you're young, your body's able to recover, but it does take a toll on any player. I don't care if you're 21 all the way to 32, obviously the 32 is going to feel the effects much more than a 22 year old, but Zach is doing a phenomenal job of understanding that a fresh mind and body will help you during the playoff line. You can get there. If you get there, I think that could be the difference in them going to the AFC championship game opposed to winning the AFC championship game and going on to the Super Bowl. I think he's, I, I can't, I can't say to you how much I commend him for that philosophy. Well, the players have clearly all bought in, whether it's, you know, the Sam Hubbards of the world or the, the, the Kappas of the world who have played with other teams and that kind of thing. They, they think it's just phenomenal. And, and look again, it's hard to argue and, and whatever it might be as a young player. So last thing I want to ask you about, you're coming in, or, or let's even say a free agent player. Now, I know they're very different, but say a Nick Scott that comes in, right? I mean, there's a lot on Scott back there at safety, and the two guys they're replacing. They're starters from a year ago. Um, at the end of the day, what do you want to get out of the next three or four days of minicamp before you have the long break leading up to training camp? Mental. Everything's mental. Learning the plays, uh, understanding and getting on the same page. And I'll tell you why that's important, especially on the backside of the Bengals' defense. You got rid of Von Bell and Jesse Bates. Those guys, and I, I always say this, at certain points in times of the game, one, if not both of those guys, they were clearly envisioned of every single player on the football field. So they know how to put players in the right spots. If they see the mistakes, they're able to adjust to it, et cetera, et cetera. Now that you have new guys coming in, you have to utilize this mini camp to make sure that these guys understand the defense. Offense is pretty simple. You know, offense, you run a five route, you run a five route. You, I mean, it's, it's just not going to change. Defensively, I mean, they've played so well together, and we know how important the uh, Coach Lou has had those guys ready, but they are enjoying themselves. And when you enjoy yourself, Tom, the number one component of that is you don't have guys missing assignments. When you have guys missing assignments, that pisses players off as well as coaches. But if you can't rely on your teammate to be in the right spot at the right time, you know, bad results and bad things happen. And that's what minicap is for. Minicap is, you know, they're not going to go out there and run 40s. They're not going to go out there and hit. What they're going to do is they're going to go out there and get on the same page with shorts and walk through and, you know, get to get a feel for the football team and, and, and hopefully stay away from injuries. And that's probably the key right there. Because any football team, Tom, any football team, the Bengals are very talented. Let's use them as an example. One key injury, the Bengals are not very talented. Plain and simple. They can go from we're going to win the AFC or pick to win the AFC North to one injury 
and they're not going to win the AFC North. So you have to keep your players fresh and keep them available. And Zach you know, Taylor. Yeah, that, 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 I didn't mean to interrupt you, Tim. Please forgive me. I, no, you're fine. I, I'm, curi- I'm curious. When you said something, though, and it's the last thing I want to ask you, but but I, I've always wondered about this. You know, when, when you hear that a wide receiver, and you'll hear this frequently, uh, people talking about on the radio, commentators on a game, that the guy's a great route runner. What exactly does that mean? You talked about relying on teammates. I've heard coaches say, look, if this play calls for the wide receiver in the slot to run five yards and slant, right, at a certain ang- – I mean, all the way down to the angle they want you to slant on. That exactly better be the route you run. Not four yards, not seven yards, five yards. Is that true? That is 100% true. When you hear that term, a great route runner, that means he is in the right place at the right time. Early is not good and late sure is not good. To understand that means the quarterback, it starts with the quarterback and it pretty much relied heavily upon the offensive line. You can't take extra steps. And again, we talked about this earlier because those defensive ends and the push up front are not going to allow the quarterback to just go sit back there and pick apart a defense. And the way the game has evolved, it used to be the big clumsy guys were on defense, particularly on the defensive line. But now you have defensive ends running 4 3 40. So timing is, is of the essence. And a great route runner is a guy that you can rely on because a quarterback will know where he is. And when you, you talked about basketball, if you ever look at the, a basketball game and you see the four guys, typically four guys, one in around the three-point line, you see them making passes because they know where that guy is supposed to be yeah. and putting that ball in the right shooting pocket. No difference in route running. That quarterback knows where that guy should be. And, and you hear it all the time. Oh, he threw it before he came out of his route. Well, yeah, because that's the only way you're going to be successful. Who's the best route runner on the Bengals? I will say it's it's funny because I think I think Tyler Boyd may be the best route runner inside. Why? Because he has the most feel. By being inside, he has you know you have a tremendous advantage on the inside because it's really hard to double a right receiver. But when you look at Jamar Chase. He has such an awkward style. I have literally never seen a wide receiver run routes like Jamar Chase. Sometimes he comes off the ball hopping, but he's, again, he's an exceptional talent. And a good coach like Eddie Brown, when when I played with him, a good coach does not change that. A good coach goes, oh, no, 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 no. You know, that's a bad coach. Don't, Don't do it that way. Do it this way. No. Jamar Chase does some things unconventional, but they're very, very super effective. And, you know, again, Joe Burrow, Jamar Chase has gotten on the same page with his style of route run. But again, it's not that, you know, go go to the parked car, make a, left, make a right behind the parked car, and then run around the tree. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just not that anymore. It's you better have your butt there because Joe Burrow is going to be on his back. And the second part of that, Tom, is the scramble drill and understanding where the quarterback is moving to and getting his vision. And then the last part of that is being able to adjust to any defense. So, yeah, the, co- the coach called a slant. The, the cornerback is sitting inside. There's no way I can run a slant. That slant becomes maybe whatever the, uh, whatever the, uh, the, the game plan calls for. It can, it can become a go. It can become an out 
and but to know that you have a nanosecond a nanosecond to adjust on the run and that what makes a very good complete wide receiver you know i've always thought tim and and i you know i watch a lot of lacrosse because my son was a all-state player and that kind of thing playing lacrosse but 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 but, you know i have always felt and it goes back to what you were talking about with a scramble drill um and it's not as that 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 whether it's lacrosse whether it's soccer whether it's football i've always felt like Athletes could gain such a unique perspective by playing basketball, even if it's not highly competitive basketball, right? It could be just some rec league, but, but, but you understand the use of space in basketball, I think, better than any other sport because of the confined space that you have. And knowing, like you, to, to reference football now, Nothing is more frustrating when you're just sitting there watching a game, some stiff like me, right? When the quarterback's rolling out to the right, the receiver ran the route that they ran that may have been a slant, but now the quarterback's out of the pocket and the, and the receiver doesn't have the wherewithal to understand, I, I, I might want to break near the sideline, the side where he's running, to get open, right? And, and I mean, to me, that just seems like space. Am I right on that? That is 100% correct, considering like if you're on the sideline. If you're already on the sideline and the quarterback's coming towards you, well, you've run out of real estate. So you have to go up the field. And why do you go up the field? Because you're creating space for the guy that's coming across the field. So yes, your analogy is so on point in understanding if kids would play basketball. And like you said, it doesn't have to be competitive to understand. And it's not just the spacing aspect of it, but what are the other guys do? How do you affect the next guy? If you have a zone and if you're a wide receiver and you run across a zone, how do you affect the next guy or the next hole? Well, you just ran into his space. So you have to sit down in your proper space and to know not just a complete wide receiver doesn't just know what he's doing. He knows what the whole concept of the play is going to be. He knows who the quarterback's priority is. He understands that. He understands, and you'll see, like Randy Moss will say, I didn't play hard every play. I mean, you, you will be a fool knowing that the quarterback's progression is way on the other side of the field, and you're not even in it. And there's times that happen. Why are you going to blast off the, off the line of scrimmage running full speed where there's no absolute purpose for it? You're just not in that play. But also understanding my job, Tim McGee, one of the fastest guys on the team. My job, run through the middle. Take take the safeties, Eddie Brown comes underneath. Everybody, take the crowd roars, Eddie Brown, 60, 70-yard touchdown. They have no idea what just happened. What happened was two guys saw me hauling ass down the field, followed me, that left Eddie wide open. So understanding the whole concept of what the coaches and what the play calls for, that also makes a complete wide receiver. Tim, you're the man, and uh, we love having you on the program. It's nice to see you again. I hope your summer's off to a good start. You got anything fun going on? You in Cincinnati? You down in Florida? Where are you? Actually, I'm in Cincinnati just enjoying it, playing a little pickleball. Uh, actually, my, the, the normal, I'm headed to the doctors to get these old ricket knees taken care of. So, you know, that's, 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 a part of my, that's a part of my life. But being back in Cincinnati, see, that you got that cup there we talked about, that UDF. Yeah. I got to go get that. I got to go get that, that UDF shake, man. I gotta, there you go. When I'm in town, I know people love Skyline Chili, 
but I'm a UDF man. <laughs> yeah. Amen, brother. Yeah. I mean, it's funny pickleball. I got, I mean, I got injured the other day, my wrist and I'm, I'm worried that something in there is, is really messed up. Playing pickleball? But playing pickle. You know, I mean, it, you know how it is, Tim, you're up there at the net and, and I liken it sometimes to, it, th there was a rash for a long time in major league baseball where these guys are so strong. This was years ago. That hamate bone down at the bottom of your hand, right? You can feel it right mm -hmm. down there above your wrist. Where guys were so strong that they would go to, to check their swing, and because of the force and now holding it up really quick and the weight of the bat, they would snap that hamate bone right off the end down there. It used to happen regularly in baseball. I'm surprised it doesn't happen much anymore. But, 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 but I, I had a doctor friend of mine over the weekend tell me that for doctors and orthopedics, Pickleball is the best thing that's ever happened to their business. Yeah, no question about right? it. I mean, and I no said, well, question. yeah, because it's all us old guys playing, <laughs> and now we're trying to be athletes falling. like you, and it doesn't work that way. Hey, we're 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 falling. How many times have you seen a ball lob over someone's hair and you head and you see that person just fall like a tree? Timber <laughs> and, and, and I can make millions of dollars if I just hit ice on the sideline. <laughs> I You're run right Middletown Pickleball Association, and I can just tell you, man, just seeing the number of people. But it's addicting, man. Yes, Everybody's playing it now. And it's yep. no longer an older person's sport. It is a young person's sport. It's a family sport. And, man, I'm telling you, it's something to be reckoned with. It did never compete with the big three or the big four, but it is something that all could do no matter you know yeah. what, what level you want to be in. It's every man's game. It and, and and you're right when it comes to whether you're with other couples or whether you're with your kids. I mean, I, you know, I got I got a kid going to college, got a kid already in college, and the four of us can go out and play and just have a great time. It's a great sport. Although I don't I think like these funny. braces and all this stuff. Dude, I, Tom, I think it's funny as hell when, when kids come in the door and go, hey, can we play pickleball today? It's like, wait a minute. You were just two years ago. You were just like, that's for old people. That's What's right. up with that now? Oh, me, my friends, we're, we're getting ready to go play. <laughs> like, yep. okay. It, it's, it, it really is a good sport, and I'm an ambassador for the sport. So, Well, I, yeah, we got to get out sometime and play a little bit. That'd be yep. fun. Mm -hmm. All right, man. Tim, right. thanks for your time as always. Great to see you, buddy. Have a great day today. Appreciate you having me. Thanks, Okay, Tom. Tim okay. McGee, the great Tim McGee, number 85 of the Cincinnati Bengals. I just find some of that inside football stuff so interesting. You know what I mean? I mean, to hear him talk about routes and, and all that kind of thing, you know, you sit there and you watch a game on television and, you know, all of us think we're experts and we're watching this stuff. Why didn't this happen? Why didn't that happen? Whatever it might be. But to hear his perspective on it, uh, fellows, I'll start with you guys. I, I, I find that stuff fascinating. Yeah, I mean, we had Willie on, Willie Anderson on yep. a couple of weeks ago to talk about the switch from left tackle to right tackle, and now him talking about route running for receivers. There's no one that knows the game, knows those positions better than guys that used to play in the NFL. So it always, you know, opens my eyes for not necessarily even what I don't know, but what to look for in the future when I'm, you know, analyzing plays and watching film and stuff like that to talk about guys. So it's always great to hear from ex-players talk about stuff like that. You guys are not old enough, though, Elliot, to remember the great Tim McGee. That's correct. Right. That's correct. I worked with him a little bit over at my old job, but yeah, I. You I, were at WLW, right? That's correct. That's right. That's correct. And he and he, I, and I guess you kind of see with ESPN how it's how it's not that we not that I veer credit to them, but it's when you see former players talk about like what it was like, it's it's so much more interesting than seeing a non-athlete give their perspective. Yeah. So that's what that's I I always love that. I've always loved that. 
Tim McGee tells it like it is, man. I, I just think, I mean, you know, the more I listen to this guy through the years and hearing him on WLW doing the uh, the post game yep. uh, for all, with Chick uh, Ludwig all yep. those years, I mean, they were so good together. And I, I'm assuming maybe they're back again this year. I don't know. Um, but I just can't believe. Now, he's done a lot of things. And we've talked about that with Tim McGee. He was, you know, player, became an agent. I mean, th- this guy has been very successful an entrepreneur, this thing that he's doing with the pickleball, and he kind of blew through that. But it's a big deal what he's got going on up here in, uh, over in Middletown. But um, I'm surprised that guy is not in the booth or was never in the booth. I don't know if he had any desire to ever be in the booth. I've never asked him. But that guy knows the game, man, and knows how to describe it and is not afraid to, to, to tell it like it is. Yeah. Yeah, and he's come on this show, and every time he comes on the show, it's he's on here for a half hour, and you learn something that you hadn't learned, like when you're talking about route running or whatever it might be. And, uh, you know, it, it is interesting having all these guys that are played different positions, whether, you know, I mean, even going back to w- when Lap came on the show a long time ago, I mean, there's just different things that you pick up here and there. And, you know, as somebody like myself, never played football, you know, I've only broadcasted it, but I never played it. So I just try to pick things up here and there and, and try and get what I can. It's always great to hear stuff like that. Oh, yeah. I mean. Is this that, a new that, thing now that you've decided to do on your honeymoon, that anytime you're going to talk, you're taking your headset <laughs> off? I no, mean, I, what's the deal? I've been doing you've that. You've never done that before. Yeah. Not regularly like you are today. Every time you know, we come to you today, I mean, you have a new hairdo. <laughs> you got. You look like you've been painting closets for a week, and you were in Florida. You know what he's Where's doing? Where's the tan? I, I'm not going to lie to you, Tom. I listened to the directions of the, the suntan, or not the suntan, just the sunscreen. It tells you, it tells you 80 minutes. That's it. That's all it's, that's all you can use it for is 80 minutes. So I was reapplying every 60. I mean, were you putting on like 95 block? Is, yeah. I mean, yeah, like, seriously. Yes. 90, 90 block. SPF I, 90? Yes. Not even I, enjoying the Is there such point. a thing as 90? <laughs> I'll be honest. I didn't know that. I think it's, well, whatever the highest is, we, that's what we had. Whatever was the highest available on the shelves is what we grabbed. I'm pretty sure it was like 90. But no, no, not lying, Tom. I, I take it very seriously. My family does not like it when we get sunburnt because just... Both sides of the family have really bad yep, I get runs it. with skin cancer. I get so, it. I get it. It's no uh, fun. I've had stuff cut off. It's no fun. Yeah, and that is just something that I don't ever want to experience is getting any uh, any part of my body just, you know. How about your off. bride? Did she get a tan or is she? She got, so she got some burnt on her chest. Oh, okay. That's, that's yeah. about it. Yeah, that's an area that's extremely vulnerable for whatever reason. And I tell you what's even more vulnerable is when you start to get the divot. Like I got going back here. You know, it looks like somebody hit a wedge, you know, and all of a sudden you got this hole in your head back here <laughs> where there's no hair, right? Yeah. And your whole life, you know, you never thought for a second. You know, I don't have to worry about any, you know, sunburn on my head. Well, you get the divot, you can get sunburn on your head. Yeah. And I, Boy, it sucks getting the divot and getting the sunburn on the head. Oh, yeah. Surprisingly, I don't know if this is the same for many females. I don't know if there's any in the chat today, but... If you split your hair, like it'll burn your scalp just in that tiny little spot, wherever your split is. And I, that could happen to guys too, but like you've got any any exposed skin on your scalp, I can't imagine going through a, a sunburn on your scalp because I would just be constantly itching and 
I could. Yeah, that's not good. That's I fun. uh, I look. I'm on the record as saying this is not smart. I'm on the record as saying that I I could be a smarter human being, but I legitimately cannot remember the last time I put sunblock on. That's not smart. And I like hand up. I know that. Yeah, I, my, Casey my wife, and I are my wife quite... makes me do it. She makes me do it, and I'm I'm like you, reluctant. Uh, I mean, I remember one year, I, and, and, and I'm convinced the reason I had stuff cut off of me in my chest and or around, around my neck was I played in a charity golf event years ago in Phoenix okay. in June. Well, Phoenix is a whole different It's animal. eight gazillion degrees out, and it was 100 holes in one day. You had to play 100 holes? So what you do is you literally, I mean, you would literally, you'd hit the ball, you'd jump in your cart, you'd race, and just swing it. You weren't sitting there looking at it and judging the distance and all this stuff. 100 holes in one day. Yes. What course was this? I don't even remember. It was some, oh. you know, municipal course out in Phoenix. It wasn't some sweet place, you know. Okay. Yeah, they weren't going to have I don't know if you were, like, playing the Phoenician there. or something. No, 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 no. But that is brutal. And, and, and yeah, you got to, I mean, sunscreen, it is important. It's, I, I'm like you. I don't want to do it. But now you got to do it. Casey, you are the leader of men when it comes to sunscreen. Pretty much, yeah. And running the board. Yes. And his headphones are back on, Tom. <laughs> headphones have been slowly You didn't ever answer that on. question. Thank you, Elliot. You didn't answer that question. <laughs> you, know, I, you know what he's doing? I'll answer it for you, Casey. You know what you're doing? You're just getting the show back on the rails after all my audio levels from last week. That's what's going on. Well, I, I did a little research on trying to figure out how to make – the show sound a little better. So I'm testing some stuff. I don't know if anyone heard any of the audio changes since we started talking and having this conversation. That's right. But I think, I think it might sound a little better. I don't know. We'll see. I'll let the, uh, I'll let the chat decide that, but that's what it's mainly for is just to hear everyone's audio levels, making sure that we're all sounding. Okay. Headphones are off. Uh, headphones are now off. <laughs> they, they are not going back on my head until someone comes in. Which they will be coming in. What's his name, Tom? Ryan. Ryan. Ryan Lefebvre. Lefebvre. His dad, uh, one, I mean, one of the biggest personality guys I ever met in my 30-something years, and really even longer than that as a kid, because I had a chance to meet a lot of the personalities and players and managers and broadcasters in baseball going back to when my dad got the job and we moved here from Virginia Beach. Um, but Jim Lefebvre, his dad, you might remember him. Jim Lefevre was a major league manager, a couple different teams. He happened to be the manager of the Cubs uh, during the time that I was there. And, you know, look, th there are some people that, that will tell you Jim Lefevre was one of the great pioneer baseball minds of all time, especially when it comes to hitting, because he was a hitting guru. If he wasn't a manager for a team, he was a hitting coach for a lot of teams, including the Reds. Um, but this guy was... I mean, all over the place. And Ryan will you know, speak more to that. But he was just such a unique guy with his big personality and the whole nine. You're a great player. I mean, great player for the Dodgers. Won the Rookie of the Year uh, when he came up in L.A. Just a heck of a hard-nosed, tough guy. Um, so Ryan grew up around the game. And, in fact, he was an outstanding player. He was a Big Ten Conference Player of the Year playing at Minnesota. Uh, and all this kind of thing. And, and he's also, he's, a, he's, a, he's an interesting guy. I think you'll enjoy hearing from him today because he also is a guy, our friend Brandon Seho, who, of course, has his own podcast now and about mental health issues and all that kind of thing. 
Ryan Lefevre was in a lot of very dark places in his life. Very, very dark. Depression. Wrote a book about it. How his faith got him through. But we're going to talk to him about some of that today, as well as preview the Reds and the, uh, the Royals. And he broadcasts all the Royals games. So, Hammeneggers, take it away. Mr. President, I, I'm going to fight every indictment they throw at me. Take it away. <laughs> <laughs> it's that time of the show, the Hammeneggers. These guys are great. Trust me, I would know. I introduce all the best segments. Oh, we had Tim McGee on. I got to see if I remember this. He had Tim McGee on. The Bengals Report is brought to you by Encore Technologies. Encore Technologies provides IT solutions for a data-centered world with a suite of services from mobile computing to desktop to data center, supporting both centralized and work-from-home computing models to improve efficiency and productivity. That's right, Casey. Visit Encore.tech. The path to innovation begins here. There is also, right here, Pawnee. Got some more Pawnee water made right here in Hamilton, Ohio, and it uses natural limestone filtration, unlike the artificial processing that many other brands use. The result is a healthy alkaline water that is also the best tasting water in the world. You can visit their website at pawneywater.com. That is P-A-H-H-N-I water.com. P-A-H-H-N-I water.com to see where you can buy this great tasting water. Drink Pawnee water, get your coffee from UDF, bet with Betfred, and get your technology solutions from Encore.tech. If you are watching the stream, like the stream. We're at 38 likes right now. We got over 100 last week. That is why Elliot pied himself in the face on Friday at the end of Friday's show. So go ahead and like the stream. We have over 100 people watching right now. We have over 130 people watching right now. We're going to get to the Reds talk. We have a ton of Red stuff that we have not gotten to yet. We're going to get to that uh, as we talk to Ryan Lefebvre. And then after him, of course, we have the highlights and everything else. Talk about the Reds from this past weekend. Um, also, if you're listening to this in podcast form, leave a rating and a review. We don't have a ton of those on this show, but we have a ton of listeners on this show. The podcast listenership has grown every single month for the last six. I think this is the seventh month now that it's going to, it's on pace to have growth for now seven months in a row, which is a good thing when you're building a show, but leave a rating and a review. Haven't had a lot of those. And even if you're watching on YouTube and you want to go into the Apple uh, iTunes charts, Apple podcast charts, leave a Leave a rating, leave a review, tell us what you like about the show. We go in there and we read them. Same with Chatterbox Reds, same with the Rebound Rundown, same with Box Lunch, all the shows on here, Mental Game, uh, Not Too Picky, all those that are on our network. We go in, we read the reviews, we see all that stuff. So if you have some things to share, you can do it on there. Um, especially, you know, if you're in the comment section or whatever and you just want your thoughts to have a place to live that's longer than just in the live stream, um, you can do that. Is there anything else that we have forgotten? Subscribe to the channel. We crossed 8,000 subscribers. We're at 8.1 right now. The likes. Keep liking the stream. We're at 43. That's five based off my little plug. Let's well, get you it, weren't around. Uh, let's get well, it to 50. You know, the, 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 the pie in the face thing. Uh, we... <laughs> PB's ghost. I used Pawnee in my bidet. <laughs> it's good. Oh, my God. It's good. <laughs> That line right there moves him the early the early lead. That's good. <laughs> That's a big time line right there from PB's good. <laughs> uh, Ronnie keeps uh, pitching for expanding the chat power rankings. What was the overall reception to the power rankings done by Elliot last week? 
Oh, I missed that. I I think people kind of liked them. Yeah, I think I pa- Ronnie oh was. God. Ronnie was upset because he was in the honorable mentions, and he wanted it if he would have cracked the top ten, but we only did the top five or six. Not that you have to go in great detail, but do you remember your top five? I didn't get to. See I know Sir Boy. I had Sir Boy at one. I know. Yeah, my he just one. said in, okay. in in capital letters, power rankings were great! Exclamation point. <laughs> <laughs> Sir Boy was one off the top of my head. I don't remember the other four off the top of my head, but Sir Boy was my one. So who's running the power rankings this week? It well, it's Jacob? you, and it should be you. First week back. Well, isn't it Jacob? He hasn't done it yet. Oh, that's right. Jacob, you want to do it? I, I can shoulder the load this Whoa. week. Whoa. Jacob, it's all yours. Uh-oh. Take notes. Yeah, I'll well, take it. Start taking notes now. Hey, look, Sir Boy Wonder put your picture as his uh, profile pic. I know. He's he's gunning for back-to-back. Back-to-back. Mm. <laughs> now, like I got to tell you, our friend, the, the player formerly known as Mouse Cop, says he uses Pawnee in his bong. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's big league too. <laughs> <laughs> There's no doubt about it. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Uh, Alex says he won the chatterbox Reds best comment last week. Okay. And Reed says uh, Jacob got a great haircut. I appreciate that, Reed. So as we're waiting for, yeah, for Ryan Lefevre. For, for Ryan. Um you want to get into some of this Reds talk? Yeah, I mean, you guys tell me. I mean, look, I, 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 it's it's got to be interesting. I was trying to to put myself in the perspective of being a Cardinal fan for a minute, right? Or any fan could be Kansas City tonight. Although, then you know, their relation to the Reds is so far distant compared to the Cardinals being in the same division. Um, but De La Cruz rolling into town. You know, they have to be looking at the Reds a little bit and going, uh-oh. Right? Yeah. Casey, run the the single. Run the, yeah, run this. So this is after De La Cruz says he's the fastest man in the world. Yes, okay. run this. Pitching standpoint, he calls it the devil's lair. <laughs> we should try some of the concessions. <laughs> so, bang, bang, De La Cruz infield hit. Um, I don't know if you saw my tweet. You cannot take your but eyes I off of Ellie De La Cruz, who proclaimed himself yesterday was the fastest Sadak man alive. Well, the, laughing the through are take a their pre-pitch thought as fast this is just a routine ground ball to first because they're not thinking of it. You're trained as a broadcaster on a, on a ground ball like this. It's just, oh, you know, that's one to that's three to one. That's an out. You mark it in your scorebook. You move on. But it was kind of just like J.R. House on Saturday where – House almost got run over because he was throwing up the stop sign, and Ellie ran right through it, coming around the base, coming around the baseline. It feels like everybody is still kind of, even though they're at the major league level, they're still getting used to what Ellie can do, and it just felt like a microcosm of that when you have him right here on a two hopper to first. That's the most one of the most routine plays in the game, and he beats it out. Yeah, you just don't see that much. And I remember back in twenty. 12 or 2011 when Bryce Harper was coming up and he was making these kinds of plays and he stole home on Cole Hamels and Cole Hamels hit him in the back because he was this young punk kid and he had all this attitude. So Hamels hits him in the back on purpose. That was on Sunday night baseball and Harper gets around a third. 
Hamels picks over to first. Harper takes off and steals home. And that, to me, felt like the moment that the Nationals franchise changed. They didn't win the World Series till 2019, and Harper wasn't even on that team. But to me, Harper stealing home was when it felt like the Nationals invested and really you could feel like something changed in the organization. I had that same feeling last week when I was at the park for Ellie's debut on yep. Tuesday where he rips a double off the bat. You see him taking bases like this. He's stealing bases automatically when he comes to the plate and he's getting on. You just know he's going to get over. It's just an incredible play. I mean, I, so my one thought about Ellie being called up, right? I didn't really follow much of the, you know, the, the lower leagues like AAA, AA. didn't really follow him much there. As soon as he made it to the big leagues, I mean, the very first two, the very first series he's ever in, right? He's in the top percentile in making it to first base. Like he, he's breaking records already. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I don't know if we really did him justice about how good this guy is physically. I mean, this guy is a specimen. He, he is, is just insane. All right, let me interrupt real quick. Uh, Ryan Lefevre says to me he's, he, he, he has not seen the link. I know you sent it to him, Casey. Uh, I'll tell him we're going to resend it. Is that all right? Yep. That's fine. Okay. I but didn't mean to, to interrupt. Go ahead. But just to finish the thought is just the sort of energy that – he brings to this Reds team is exactly what they needed, right? We talked about how they needed to learn how to win, and they're slowly learning how to win. And every time they bring up one of these guys, it's like they get another boost of, of energy and yep. they get to another level of play that wasn't previously there. I mean... And look, this goes back to the point that I was making all season. And it goes back to to what I've talked about through the minor leagues and these guys coming up together, and now they're all gradually, you know, McLean first, then Abbott, then Ellie, probably going to see Encarnacion Strand here not too far down the line. And it goes back to the point that I make where, you know, the Louisville Bats were over 500 for the first time in, what, seven years yep. this season? Yep. And winning together, you don't – you, when you win together and you grow up in this winning culture of all of these guys playing together, your friends, you, you play together, you're excited together, there is something to be said for that. And now all of a sudden you're playing in a terrible NL Central and a really bad NL Central. And you're thinking to yourself, I mean, there's a reason that Trace brought it up yesterday on, on Shatterbox Reds. There's a reason that more and more people have been talking about it that I'm not saying on June 12th, that the Reds are going to win the NL Central. I'm not saying that. But they are certainly playing with an attitude right now, Tom, that makes you think to yourself, all right, if they can get some starting pitching in here, they might have something going for them. But until they figure out the pitching issue, you can't buy all the way in. But the lineup is better than pretty much any lineup in the NL Central. But you can't get over it. You can, eventually, you're not going to be able to just – outscore every well, team. Well, I mean, that's what happened in the two wins over the Dodgers. The starting pitching was brutal. Yeah. And the offense, you know, like you said, you can't you can't expect to go out and score seven, eight, nine, ten runs in a game. It's just, it's not going to happen. Uh, I don't care who you play. Uh, and for the Reds, starting tonight, that means they're going to be taking on the Kansas City Royals. And our good friend, uh, great guy, one of my favorites out there for a long, long time, kind enough to join us. 
He's out running kids all over the place today. Our buddy Ryan LaFever. <laughs> Ryan, I got to tell you, I mean, I haven't seen you physically in quite a while. I mean, I, people got to tell you all the time, man. The older you get, the more and more you look like one Jim LaFever. It's unbelievable, yeah. isn't it? I hear that all the time. And by the way, uh, thanks to Jim LaFever, I got to sit in the booth with you in 1992 and 1993 at Wrigley Field when I was visiting my dad. And uh, here we are all these years later. Well, you've been at it for a long time there in Kansas City. Before we talk about you a little bit, I want, I want to talk about this series. Uh, I read an article yesterday, uh, I think it was on Royals.com, something along those lines, where it was, are, are the Royals really this bad? I mean, the record says what it says, but what has been your impression of the Royals are, are there some things that you can find that are positive? Well, I've always felt that that, that question really never makes any sense because you can finish in last place and spend the whole off season saying, you know, we could have won the division, but they don't give you a division title just because you felt like you should have won the division. So I think a lot can be learned from the record that they have right now, because it is what it is and what they're going through is, a lot of what the team we just played is going through, the Baltimore Orioles and uh, the Pittsburgh Pirates and the Arizona Diamondbacks, the Cincinnati Reds, you name it. And what they've done is I think they've realized that they may have pushed the envelope in the 2020 season. We, we were confronted with this 60-game season. We had a lot of young pitching that we had drafted a couple of years before that out of college. They were on the edge of getting to the big leagues, maybe not completely ready, but we thought, you know, in a 60-game season, new ownership, let's go for it. And then a couple of years later, there were some position players that were on the doorstep, and let's get them up here and see if they can play. And then mixed in with some veterans and, and whatever, and then you end up kind of in that limbo situation. Are we trying to win? Are we trying to develop? You really can't do both. So the the record is what it is, but what they're doing is they've identified the players that they think they're going to move forward with, and they're just going to play them. And by the end of the year, you figure out who's going to go forward with you, who's not. You've seen it, Tom. I've seen it. Too many teams get to the end of a season with young players, and they go, you know, I still don't know if this guy can play or not because he only played 92 games, and we protected him in, in high leverage moments. And so they're just going to run him out there and see what we have at the end of the year. You know, you, you're so right, uh, Ryan, about that. And I have always been so highly critical of teams that are in that position, the exact one that you just said, where they had a chance to do something about it going arguably, in some cases, all the way back to spring training on a given year, right? But for whatever reason, they could be uh, maybe the kid's not ready. Or from a physical standpoint, they say, why start the clock? Whatever it might be. But, man, when you get to end of seasons and you're asking yourself about young guys, boy, uh, you know, can he do it, whether he's a pitcher or a player? I, I, I just it, – it boggles my mind how many times that mistake is made over and over in this sport. You agree with that? No doubt. And, you know, we've had a long, long stretch of losing seasons before the Royals went to back-to-back -back World Series in 2014 and 2015. And – and they were caught in that limbo for a long time for good reason. I mean, they're trying to put the most competitive team on the field, and I get that. But the worst place to be in is on October the 1st or the 3rd or whenever the season ends and you start forecasting the upcoming season and you still don't know about a young player 
who spent most of the season on the roster. And yes, there are times you have to protect a young player. There are times that, you know, you don't want to run a young reliever out into a high leverage situation at Yankee Stadium when he's been in the big leagues for two weeks. I mean, there certainly is a, a, a ramping up process. But at the same time, you know, if you're going to go young, go young. Figure out what you have at the end of the year. And the teams that have turned the corner have taken a lot of hits from their fan base. They've taken a lot of hits from the media. They've taken a lot of hits from the Players Association because they're not out signing high-priced free agents that no other team wants. And we're obligated then to give them a job because we're a young team. And, and I think the reason why we've seen so many teams turn the corner very quickly this year is because they grinded through with young players and you just never know when it's going to click. I mean, ideally, um, De La Cruz, Bobby Witt Jr., you'd love to put them on a veteran team and bat them seventh. And then over the course of two years, they end up in the middle of the order. But that's when you're in a situation like the Reds are in the situation like the Royals are, you got to figure out who you are and you just got to go with it. Um, you know, I, I want to go back to the two years that you mentioned there a moment ago where the Royals uh, played in back-to-back -back World Series. Of course, they won one of those World Series. And I have always maintained that when you are a smaller market or mid-market franchise, that when you have like the Royals had during that stretch, when you have what the Reds think they have and what the Reds certainly had going back to, say, 2012, when they had the best record in the National League, uh, you know, they win the first two playoff games in San Francisco. They're coming back home. They only got to win one more. They haven't lost three in a row at home all year long. Naturally, they get swept. End of season. Everybody bummed. Core of young players. Blah, blah, blah. But for, for the small and mid-market franchises, Ryan, tell me if you agree with this. You know, when you get that shot, and it could be a one-year run, Royals two, three-year run, Reds had a two, three-year run where all those pieces were together. Man, you better do it because you know what's mm -hmm. coming, and that's a free agency or the arbitration, and you start trading guys and all that kind of thing. The difference between the Royals and the Reds is when the Royals got their chance, they did it. When the Reds got their chance, they didn't do it. Yeah. Yeah, and um, I had a conversation with someone with the Minnesota Twins recently and I went to college there and I started my career there so I still have a lot of friends and you remember they had that run they won six divisions in nine years they got past the first round one time now that's a heck of a run and I don't care if it's the American League Central or whatever six divisions in nine years that's a lot of good baseball in a very short period of time but they never really went for it they never when they got to the trade line by the way, thank you for Johnny Cueto in 2015. Yeah. We also got Ben Zobrist from the Oakland A's. I mean, we went for it. Now, if we lose in the first round, which we should have, we were down by four in the eighth inning in game four of the division series at Houston. I mean, it could have been over in the first round, similar to what happened to the Reds. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're, you went for it and, and free agency is looming, like you said, and you really don't have anything to show for it. So we were, we were fortunate to win a World Series. But I do think, to your point, that there is a difference between really going for it, trying to win a World Series, as opposed to, hey, let's just try and win the division and maybe the chips will fall in place and the postseason will get hot. That does happen. That happened to the Royals in 2014. They won eight straight um, postseason games before we lost to the World Series against the Giants. 
But there was a feeling like, hmm, we could have done a little bit more. And they went out and they got the best starting pitcher that was available, Johnny Cueto, and they got the best position player that was available, Ben Zobrist. They gave up a ton, which is part of the reason why the Royals are in the position they are right now, is they gave up a lot to get those two guys. But they went for it. They won it. And now there's a template in place that, even though it's been a while since we've won the World Series, that there's a, I think there's still some trust that remains that this organization knows what they're doing and they're willing to grind with us through what's going on right now. Um, tonight's starter, Zach Greinke. You, you know, I've I, I, I obviously seen him pitch a lot. I've never been around him. I, I have found him to be such a fascinating guy. Uh, you read these stories about, and the athletic, uh, the publication continues to write these stories about Zach Greinke. You know, I remember the guy, and Ryan, you were there, you know, when he came up with the Royals organization, all the talent in the world, number one pick, all this kind of stuff on some bad teams when he first came up with the Royals. Um, you know, there, there were a lot of people saying this guy, he's a head case, he's this, he's that, whatever else. W walk us through who is Zach Greinke? Because if there's a more interesting guy in baseball over the last 20 years, I'm not so sure there's one out there. There really isn't. And the first time he was here, quite honestly, Tom, it was a constant roller coaster ride for him and for us just trying to figure out as an organization how to handle Zach Greinke. He had the courage to leave the team in 2006 to deal with some um, anxiety and depression. And at that time, players were not admitting to that. You know, players would have a, a shoulder issue, but really what they were dealing with was a, a personal issue. He had the courage to stop, to step away and deal with what he needed to deal with. He came back uh, rejuvenated. He pitched out of the bullpen for a while. The biggest concern for Zach, I mean, he was so young when he got to the big leagues and, and he didn't, he Let's see, maybe you can relate to this. You've been around the game your whole life. He didn't dream about being a big leaguer. He dreamed about playing in the big leagues. And there's a difference between the two because there are a lot of guys that just want to be a big leaguer. They want all the things that come with being a big leaguer. And it takes getting to the big leagues to accomplish that. Some guys just want to play baseball. you know. And I think Zach just wanted to play baseball. He got to the big leagues at age 20 on an older team. And he just didn't fit in. And the four days between his starts were just torture for him. There were rumors that he went to the front office after the first year and said, can I start all over again in A-ball as a position player? And he probably would have made it to the big leagues as a position player. So when he came back as a reliever, I think everyone felt like, you know what, maybe this is a better fit for him. He can pitch three days a week. He doesn't have as much downtime in between starts. But eventually they put him back in the rotation. He won the Cy Young, which was great for us, great for him in the end, but really wasn't the best thing for him at that time because now he's a household name. Everybody wants a piece of Zach Greinke. Everybody wants to know why he left in 2006. Is he getting better? On and on and on. And so all of a sudden there's this huge attention toward him, which he didn't want. And a year later we're trading him because he really didn't want to be here anymore. I think he'd tell you right now he didn't want to be here anymore. He didn't think we could win. We traded him to Milwaukee for Lorenzo Cain and Alcides Escobar. Lorenzo Cain was the ALCS MVP in 2014. Alcides Escobar was the ALCS MVP in 2015. So that trade really worked out for us. But I tell you what, having him back now as a father of three and a husband, 
uh, it's just been so refreshing for all of us. I think we all had some unfinished business with him. I think um, we all would have had regrets if he didn't come back and and maybe finish his career as a Royal. I don't know if he's going to continue to play or not. But he is just – Zach Greinke is Zach Greinke. And there's – God made one Zach Greinke. <laughs> and every time you're around him, he he – now that we know him better, uh, he's just a fascinating person to talk to. And he has a terrific sense of humor. And you're, you, you, um, you mentioned that article in The Athletic. I'll add a story that happened this year. We were in Anaheim, and Drew Butera is a member of the Angels coaching staff now. And he was a, our catcher in 15. In fact, he caught the final out of the World Series when Wade Davis struck out Wilmer Flores. And, uh, and he was uh, Zach's personal catcher for a time with the Dodgers. So we're in Anaheim, and I'm talking to Drew Butera by the batting cage, and here comes Zach Greinke, and he's got this grin on his face, and he just interrupts the conversation. Didn't mean anything bad by it, and he says, "Drew, you know, I've been thinking you need to make a you need to make a comeback." And Drew said, "Well, why is that?" He goes, "Because everybody hits under 200 now, <laughs> and I mean that's 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 Zach Greinke, and uh, you know, but then it's it's, and I don't want to drag this out too long, but." Um, we sit near, he sits behind me on the plane and I've known him now since he was 20 years old and he's 39. And one of his most recent accomplishments was, is he struck out 1000 different hitters. There are five pitchers in major league baseball that have struck out 1000 different hitters and he just downplayed it. And so we were having a fun little conversation on the plane about me saying, Zach, you might be the last guy that ever does that. I mean, you can't downplay something like that. I mean, it's Nolan Ryan and Roger Clemens and Greg Maddox and Randy Johnson and you. I mean, come on. That's a big deal. And he went into this long thing about how, well, 10 years from now, there's going to be 10 of those guys because nobody cares about striking out anymore. And uh, we're going to go to 32 teams and you aren't going to have two different leagues and everyone's going to be facing everybody. So I don't think it's that big of a deal. And so our research guy gave us a list of who was on the cusp and just a really interesting conversation with with someone who just his he's brilliant because he's not only good physically, but his thought process in a game is fascinating. You know, it's been debatable. Uh, do you think he's a Hall of Famer? There's some out there that say yes. There are others out there that for whatever reason say nope. What do you think? I think he is. I think he is. I mean, he's he's going to probably get to 3,000 strikeouts this year. Um, he has won a Cy Young. He's won an ERA title in both leagues. He's been an All-Star six times. He's won six gold gloves. He's won a silver slugger. Uh, and I think everything I just rattled off, he's the only – I think he's the only pitcher who has won a Cy Young an ERA title in both leagues, a gold glove, and a silver slugger, the only pitcher in the history of the game. He and he, Bob Gibson and Greg Maddox are the only ones to go to six all-star games and win six or more gold gloves. So he's slowly but surely putting himself on lists of five or lists of four or lists of three. It's pretty amazing when you start looking at some of those things. Before I let you go, because, uh, you know, there are a lot of people out there. We have a, a young guy here um, – named Brandon Seho, who does this podcast about mental health. He's gone through a lot of mm -hmm. a lot of depression, suicidal thoughts, all those kind of – you mentioned Granke um, having the courage to do it. You were in the same boat. You were a, an outstanding college player at, at the University of Minnesota, your hometown in Minneapolis. I uh, play in a COD league. You play a little bit of minor league baseball, and then your career takes off as a broadcaster. But you came out and wrote a book about – the depression issues and anxiety issues that you had to deal with. 
Yeah, and it, it ties into Zach somewhat because the summer before Zach left the team is when I was going through the worst of my anxiety and depression. It was the summer of 2005. And in 2006, uh, Jeff Passan, who is a great national writer and reporter now, he was writing for the Kansas City Star. And I, I didn't share it with a lot of people, but he asked me about it and they wrote a story about it in the Kansas City Star. And it was at the same time that Zach had left the team for anxiety and depression. So you've got Zach, a professional athlete, first of all, admitting that's what he was really going through and he was away from the team. And the team's announcer, who at the time was 35 years old and had the life that most men would dream of having, broadcasting Major League Baseball, traveling on the airplane, staying in the nice hotels, and talking about how uh, much major depressive order had turned my life upside down. And so because of Zach, really, uh, that story really gained some traction because people wanted to know what's wrong with Zach? How could Zach possibly depre be depressed? How are you depressed? And so suddenly I'm on talk shows and and people are writing stories about it. I'm getting letters from fans um, whom I've never met and still haven't met thanking me for telling my story because it sounded a lot like their story. And that just kind of gained momentum over time when Jeffrey Flanagan, our, our beat writer at the time, asked me if I wanted to write a book. And so that, that book is just me detailing what happened to me in 2005 and really my childhood and all of the selfish I had, the insecurity issues I had that led up to me as a 34-year-old at the time going through, you know, the worst personal crisis of my life. Uh, but the reason I wrote the book, Tom, is not because I'm an author. I have not read a book or written a book. I've read a book, but I haven't written a book since. <laughs> Probably won't write another book. I'm not, a, I'm not a writer by nature. But the people that helped me the most, aside from my counselor and my life coach and um, whomever, what helped me the most was other people looking me in the eye and saying, you know what, I went through the same exact thing and here's what I did. And I could look them in the eye and see them as someone who got to the other side of it. And that really is what gave me the most hope. And I realized because of my platform, nothing more than my platform. Um, my story is not a remarkable story. It's just an honest story, but I have a unique platform. And I truly believe that God did not put me here to call baseball games. The reason I'm here is because I went through this and I had a lot of people walk alongside me. And really, that's that's my main purpose in life outside of being a husband and a father is sharing my experience at men's groups and churches and and um, which makes what I went through worth it. You're a good man, Ryan. We thank the world of you. We're so excited for your success, not only what you're doing in the booth, but what you're doing to help others. And we thank you for your time today, my friend. Best to you and your family. Thank you. And thank you for everything that you did for me back in 92 and 93, because uh, after the day was over, I said, I want to do what Tom Brenneman's doing. I want to yeah, broadcast. Well, now I want to do what Ryan LaFever's doing. So now we're back. <laughs> I want to do it on radio. <laughs> I want to do it on radio and television, because I don't know if Reds fans remember back in those days with the Cubs that you did radio and TV in the same game. Yeah. I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. And it really changed the direction of where I wanted to go in my career. So I'm, I'm grateful to this day. Amen, brother. Great to see you, Ryan. Have a great day. Thanks, Tom. All right, Ryan Lefever, kind enough to join us. Really, really respect that guy so much. Uh, he, he went through a lot. I mean, there are some of the stories. I've had him on another podcast before sharing some of the stories about where he was in his life. Uh, and, man, they, they, they're, we'll get him on for a long interview one day uh, if he'll be kind enough to join us. And, um, and because, hey, look, there are a lot of, a lot of people out there 
I mean, a lot of people out there, you know, you, you walk around sometimes and you think, man, I got all these problems and nobody else has these problems. Why do, they, why do I have them and they don't have them? Everybody's got them. Everybody's got them. And, um, you know, for some, they, they take a greater toll than uh, for others. Interesting, he thinks that um, uh, Zach Greinke's a Hall of Famer. You know, it's funny. I, you hear all the time, if you have to ask if a guy's a Hall of Famer, is he really a Hall of Famer? And there are some guys out there, and, and Greinke's one of them, where, you know, I, I just kind of say to myself, and it's really unfair of me to even try to answer the question because for a long time he was in the American League where he has spent the overwhelming majority of his career over the American League. He had cups of coffee in Arizona and uh, the Dodgers and, and, um, and, and uh, Milwaukee. But most of his success, you know, a lot of it anyway, not all of it, because uh, he's been effective in both leagues. Hall of Famer for you based on everything you just said? Yeah, I think so. It's funny. We were having a discussion in the chat when you ask about uh, if you need to ask about whether a guy is a Hall of Famer, is he actually a Hall of Famer? We were listing guys off in the chat as, you know, as it related to that question. We were talking about Bryce Harper, some of, other the, some of these guys right now that are playing, Andrew McCutcheon, a lot of these guys that are in the league right now. Are they going to get into the Hall? I think Harper will get uh, – into the hall one day. I don't know if he'll be a first ballot Hall of Famer. I, I looked at his baseball reference real quick just to make sure I wasn't, you know, going off a of bias from when he was playing with the Nats or anything like that. But I mean, two MVPs. I know he hasn't won a ring. How much does the ring play into it? Probably a little bit. If you could get him one, maybe with Philadelphia. Uh, but I, I still think that Harper will get in. Um, you look at Aaron Judge, a lot of these guys. And then as it goes back to Zach Greinke, look, I haven't followed Zach Greinke's career as closely as somebody like Lefevre has, but he just feels to me like a guy with the stats to back up what could be a, a Hall of Fame career down the line, somebody that will, will get in, not somebody that will get in on the first ballot. You know, it, it, I, I don't have anything to back this up. So this take that I'm about to say could be – very wrong. I'm going to go out on a limb here. Here we go. But how how often, and this is kind of, I guess, a genuine question, too. How often do guys in the Baseball Hall of Fame have seasons that you can specifically point to that are bad seasons, and more than just one? Because it feels like right now, Zach Greinke is not having a, a Hall of Fame caliber season this year. No. But is it how many guys that, are, that get into the Hall that we say, oh, that guy's a Hall of Famer, have throwaway seasons? Now, it's different when you get to the end of the career. I know that maybe that's a mitigating factor there. But I'm just putting that out there that a lot of times when you think, oh, yeah, that guy's a Hall of Famer, you're not seeing a lot of seasons that make you th – they, they might not be the peak. They might tail off. Max Scherzer's a Hall of Famer. Guys that maybe stick around a little too long. But – I don't know. It feels to me like maybe you don't have the the throwaway seasons. But then again, when your career is as good as his was at the peak, it offsets that. So I'm, you're, you're willing to have the discussion on it. And to me, yeah, I'd still put him in. But at least that's something you think about. Frankie's closing in on 3,000 strikeouts here. He said, you know, 2,932. And I, I have a hard time keeping any starting pitcher yeah. that gets to 3,000 strikeouts out of the yeah. Hall of Fame. I mean, you can pick any other stat you want. But if you've been in the league long enough to throw 3,000 strikeouts, I mean, you got to be in. There's only what? He'd be the 19th or 20th pitcher to ever do that. 
I mean, it's not a big list. I think, I think that makes him a pretty open and shut case. Yeah, this is his 20th season, I believe. Is that right? I believe so. 20th season. So I think the longevity factor of that, his ERA, I mean, this is his worst ERA since I believe the second season in 2005. Last year, he had a sub-4 ERA. Yeah. I would say he's definitely a Hall of Famer. I don't, he's not first ballot, but he's certainly yeah. a Hall of Famer, I'd say. You know, the, the reason I bring up the whole thing about, you know, do you ask the question? Because if you go back and you look at his year by year, now, you know, Ryan brings up a good point. He played on some bad teams when he first came up with Kansas City. He'd go 13 and 10. One year went 16 and 8. That was really the big breakthrough year for him. Had a very low ERAs at 2.1. You know, but, but then he gets shipped off to Milwaukee. You know, and, and he goes with them 16-6. and six. He was a big reason why that whole thing got going. But, but, but then you start going through the next number of years, okay? You know, 9-3, and three, 21 starts. 6-2, and two, 13 starts. Injuries are piling up. Now he comes back and gets healthy. He goes to the Dodgers. Good team, right? He has seasons of 15, 17, 19 wins with a 1.6 ERA his final year with the Dodgers. Got him that huge contract in Arizona. He goes to the Diamondbacks, and he's just, you know, he's good. Good ERA. He goes to a great team in Houston. Uh, and, and, and now the, the numbers start to decline as he gets a little bit older. You know, you look at his postseason uh, pitching career. He has not been a great postseason pitcher by any stretch of the imagination. A 4-6 and six record. And in 21 starts, he's only pitched 113 innings with an ERA of over four. So, you know, look, I think you look at some of the regular numbers, 224 wins. Who did we mention the other day just got his 200th win? Clayton Kershaw, right? Kershaw's been pretty good. And he's had much better year by year. He's a guy you don't even ask the question about, Kershaw. Mm -hmm. Lock, stock, barrel, no doubt about it. Granky, you know... And a lot of people get mad at me when I say the same thing about Votto. I think there are some people that ask the question, is he a Hall of Famer? And when you start stacking up his numbers, and I'm not talking about on base percentage and some of these things, that very much mean something. I don't want to dismiss that. But, but there, are, there are a lot of quote-unquote baseball guys. You go back and you start looking at first baseman and their numbers. Home runs, runs batted in, all these kinds of things. You know... There are some would say, okay, you walk the year by year through Votto's career, and he's had four or five just phenomenal years. But then there have been a lot of years that weren't good at all. Uh, and I'm not suggesting that he shouldn't be. Because if you go through a lot of these numbers that a lot of people pay attention today, and, and rightfully so, because at the end of the day, it's hard to argue when Votto says, now look, you, you can talk it into that whole debate and whittle it all down. And we've all heard this before about Joey Votto, right? Pitch that far off the outside corner with a runner at third and one out. Should he be offering at that pitch and driving the ball to left field to knock in a run and get a sack fly? Or does he take that pitch because it's not a strike and it's ball four and he flips about away and trots down to first base? I think that's a legitimate question. But... Votto, in, in, in really about as succinct as you can get, is he has said once, he said it 50,000 times or more. His job is to not make an out. And he is really good 
at not making out, right? You, you don't want to – I mean, the point is to get on base so somebody else can either drive you in. Obviously, you'd like to hit, see him hit a bunch of home runs, which he has. But Joey Votto has been phenomenal. He's arguably won an MVP three times. Uh, he was robbed in 2017. John Carlos Stanton should not have won it. 2015, I think Bryce Harper won it. It was a unanimous MVP. Harper, uh, Votto finished third that year. So I, I, I think Joey Votto is, without question, a Hall of Famer. I, I, I get the point that, you know, in, in a clutch situation, you want your guy swinging the bat opposed to just looking to get on base. But for a career, this guy's had almost a 20-year career. He's getting on base 42% of the time. Yep. That's historic. You know, that's, that's nobody does that. So I, I think Joey Votto is absolutely a Hall of Famer, in my opinion. It's interesting. His numbers are almost identical in more at bat. Um, but it, it, it's amazing how similar outside of batting average. It's amazing how similar Votto's numbers are. I was just looking him up the other day um, to Freddie Freeman. And a lot yeah. of people walk around and they say, well, Freddie Freeman's going to the Hall of Fame. Well, I think it's a little early to say that Freddie Freeman's going to go to the Hall of Fame. But some could argue that. And, and, and I'm not going to sit here and argue, uh, argue with them about it. But... Um, I don't know. It's just, it's interesting how, you know, it, maybe it's just old school baseball guys. They want to see you drive in that run. They don't yeah. want to see you walk, right? I agree. Yeah, that's why you see a lot of mixed opinions on Votto. It's just what you said. There's a lot of opportunities to, you know, sack fly, drive in runs, and he just takes the walk, you know, which is great when you're looking at his stats now. You know, we're pulling up baseball reference. He's getting on base 40-plus percent of the time. That's awesome. But, you know, when push came to shove for a couple of years, it felt like Votto wasn't, what you wanted out of the superstar on your team. So I think that's where a lot of the is he a Hall of Famer sentiment comes from. But just looking at the numbers now, yeah, I feel like it's not really a question. Tom, how much of it do you think comes into play how he hasn't won? The Reds haven't won. Does that, is that a factor at all? I think it used to be. I, I think for a long time, uh, and I still think that there's some of that in the NFL, although I think we're starting to see that change a little bit. I think for baseball, that was true for a long, long time. I don't think so much anymore. I think because... Everything is so data-driven now that, you know, you just look at the cold, hard facts and what the numbers are. Because yep. when they send out these, these ballots um, for the Hall of Fame, I mean, they give you right – it's in a packet. They just sit there or on a downloading computer or whatever. It's all right there where you can just look at the numbers. Now, Steve points out – I've never gone and, and done this, but Steve Ross, I, I'm going to do this. Steve says, check Votto's number versus Will Clark. For those of you who don't remember Will Clark, I mean, the guy could hit, man. The guy could hit. Lot like Votto, left-handed batter, uh, some power, uh, drove in runs, you know, all that kind of stuff with the Giants and later the Rangers. Um, but, but Steve Ross points out, says, check Votto's numbers against Will Clark. Very similar. And, of course, Will Clark has gotten nowhere close to being a Hall of Famer. I have to look those things up. Will the thrill, they call him. Um, so I can I join in this conversation? Just yes, please do. I so the one thing that really stinks about some of these guys, and this goes for just about every sport, when they start to diminished in their career they're not at the top of their games anymore and they just keep pushing they just keep pushing they just keep pushing you know i think a lot of like the peyton manning like that last year 
where, I mean, he just was noodle arming throws. I mean, he was bad, right? I can't help but feel like, you know, even though Votto has had something very similar, it's not exactly the same as that. You know, it's not been like consistency for 15 years, right? And sometimes, well, well, like, what I'm getting at is Peyton Manning was in the top of the league. And this is probably a poor comparison because not everyone's Peyton Manning, right? Especially at their, their game. But Peyton Manning had 15 years of unbelievable success. Yeah. Always the top of the league. You look at Drew Brees, another guy that we think should be a first bout Hall of Famer. And this is what we're kind of arguing, right? Is Joey Votto a first bout Hall of Famer? Is he even a Hall of Famer? He is a Hall of Famer. And I to think. me, to me, to me, the last few years that he's been in the league with the injuries and just, I think has really changed the perception of him. Whereas I think if you were to ask. Yeah. Well, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just saying, if you were to ask back when I'm just looking here, 2019, he was definitely on track to be probably a first ballot. Am I correct on saying that? Yeah, but I mean, even still, the only, I guess, down seasons you would say that he had would have been 2020. Which, and COVID that was the season. COVID. Yeah, that was exactly. a COVID season. I mean, he yeah. hit 266 in 2021. Well, also at the same, in the same sentiment is that injuries also play a huge part in this too. Like, I don't know. It's just unfortunate for him that He's been in the league 16 years, and he's gotten an MVP vote in half of them. That's pretty good. He led the league in on-base percentage eight years. Well, that's what like, I'm he saying. He had a great heat yeah. as well. Like, it's not like he was just sustained statistics. He and had it, a phenomenal peak. And he, so then why, why do we talk about him like he doesn't have sustained success? I, that's what I'm getting at, I, I guess. Well, I think, I think like, that's why, why we're so frustrated. I think, I think you are peeling back the layer of the onion, Casey, on why we get so frustrated. But, and then to your point, Jacob, he got on, he, his on-base percentage in 2015 was 459. <laughs> that, and that didn't even lead the league. That on-base percentage, 459, was the second highest of his career behind the 474 in 2012. And he didn't even lead the league that year. All right, let me, let me jump in here a second about something, okay? So let, let's use a guy who's not in the Hall of Fame. Because Bleacher Report about a year ago ranked the top 50 first baseman of all time. Votto came in ninth on that deal, okay? But a couple of guys that are right behind him in those rankings would be, look, let's pick Todd Helton. Oh, man. Now, yeah. Everybody says, oh, you know, his numbers are inflated because he played at Coors Field in Denver. That is a fact. But he was still a 290 batter in his career on the road with an on-base percentage of 390. So he wasn't some stiff, right? This guy hit, he had almost 600 doubles, career batting average of 316, career on-base percentage of 414, and an open slugging at 539. He had 369 home runs and knocked in over 1,400 runs. So 
Now, there's a guy that's not in. Does Joey Votto deserve to go in the Hall of Fame ahead of Todd Helton? Helton's had to wait. He's not in. I mean, if you want to look at numbers now, does he go, does he go in ahead of Helton? Who did he play for, Tom? Rockies. The terrible Rockies. teams. Although he got to a World Series. I mean, he played on a couple of playoff teams. Then you get to Freddie McGriff. Took the guy forever to get in. I'm not saying that Votto's... Fred McGriff hit 493 home runs. Finished in the top 10 in MVP six times and won a World Series. He had to get in through the Contemporary Baseball Era Committee. I'm just asking the question. I'm not making the, I'm not arguing one way or the other. I'm just saying. And then you get to Rafael Palmero. Now, there is no contest between Palmero and Bottom, offensively speaking. Well, he juiced. Well, I'm not, and I'm not saying that should keep him out. Let's, let's be very clear as the world's foremost authority on Barry Bonds. But I'm just saying that's, there's your answer. I don't think there's any discussion about Palmero. All right, we'll go back to help. Yeah. Todd Helton didn't win an MVP. Votto did. Okay. Todd, and, and Todd, Todd Helton never finished top five in correct. MVP voting. Votto did three times. Like, I think there's a pretty big difference when you look at how Todd Helton – I mean, granted, I wasn't around. I wasn't watching baseball. But I feel like Todd Helton was probably viewed very differently than Joey Votto at this point in their careers, respectively. Okay. How about the Reds right now, though, Tom? We're going to talk a little bit yeah. more about the, the, the weekend from the Reds. Spend the last few minutes on this. Yeah, we can do that. Uh, you know, uh, you guys give me your thoughts. I mean, I, you know, you continue to look at them, and they're finding a way to win games. They're keeping it exciting. I don't think anybody thought in a million years we'd be in the second week of June when the season started, and you'd be talking about this team being four games out. And even being four games under 500, I compared them in the monologue, say, to the Mets, who were spending 300 and something million dollars on their payroll. They're also four games under 500, but... They don't play in the National League Central. What do you do about the pitching? Well, Hunter Green looked good yesterday. Yeah. He looked good. Uh, not great, but good. And certainly good for his first start. Been bothered by a hip. They had to back him up a week. He looked good. And he's been good. That's now three starts in a row where he's been good. Abbott, I mean, what else do you say, right? Yeah. I mean, the guy's been unbelievable. Two starts, albeit, but unbelievable. Outside of that is where you got some concerns. I would be shocked if we saw Lodolo back this year. I thought he was on track to come. Uh, well, well again, the, you know, the last time we, the, the last time he was seen, he's cruising around in one of those scooters, and we're in the middle of June. Oh boy! So he ain't coming back before mid-July at the minimum. At the minimum, because he's got to go down and, and rehab. You got to build the arm strength back up again. It's not just the injury to the leg. This guy hasn't been able to throw. Now, maybe he's getting down on a knee and he's doing some stuff just to strengthen his arm and exercises and all that. I get it. But he is going to be out for a long time. So don't even think about him. David Bell was in a situation where starting this week, um, he was going to whittle down what had been a six-man starting rotation down to five. Had Graham Ashcraft not gotten hurt the other day, 
the Reds were going to have to make a very tough call on what to do with him. Because as promising as he was in March and April, it has been a nightmare in May and June. But he hurts his calf. Now, they haven't put him on the injured list yet, but that's probably where he's headed. So then you have, what, Lively, who by and large has been okay, right? Yeah. You got Luke Weaver, and then who am I forgetting? Uh, who are we? Did you say Williamson? Oh, and Brandon Williams, oh, who really, outside of the first start, not good. Ashcraft is on the IL, by the way. They he placed him on the IL on Friday. Okay, all right. So he's on the injured list. Um, Williamson has not been good, but I'm not going to throw in the towel on Williamson. You're talking about a handful of major league starts since they brought him up. Yeah. But this is where, see, this is where it's interesting you ask that question, Paul, because here's the deal. This gets back to what we were talking about with Ryan Lefebvre. And this is where, you know, much has been made about the Reds. Are they going to deviate from their plan of building this thing up? Or because they're close in the National League Central, would they step out there and make a trade to try and win it this year? So that's one way to ask the question as it pertains to that specific topic when it comes to a rebuild and staying with a plan. But the other part of it is what we were talking with Ryan Lefevre a little bit earlier. You have to be able to answer the question at the end of the year, even on young players. You have to be able to answer the question, is this guy good enough to stay with him for the long haul? So I don't know where Weber figures into all this, how the Reds view him. He's a former number one pick. He's gone through a lot of injuries. Reds have brought him back in. He's still a young man. There's no reason why, from a health perspective, he can't blossom into a good pitcher. But you be able, you better be able to answer by the end of this season. Not much you can do about Ladola because he's hurt. But you better be able to answer, and you've already signed Green to a long-term contract. But guys like Williamson, right? De La Cruz, I know it's a fast start. McLean, Friedel, some of these guys, he's a little older than the rest of that group. You have got to be able to say by the end of the year, this guy is a keeper or we got to find somebody else to replace him. Williamson falls in that category. Ashcraft is in that category because there are legitimate questions about him now. But yeah. if, we're, if we're sitting here a month from now at the All-Star break, if we're sitting here the first game out of the All-Star break, which I believe they go to Milwaukee, I think they go Correct. to Milwaukee, right? Am I Correct. right on that? Okay. They go to Milwaukee the first series out of the All-Star break. Say they win two out of three or sweep Milwaukee out of the All-Star break. And let's just say that sweep of Milwaukee in Milwaukee, which the Oakland Athletics just did, by the way, puts the Reds two and a half to three games back in the Central. Do you go and try and win the thing? You don't overextend yourself, but if you go and do that out of the all-star break where now you're two months away, give or take, from the end of the season, I mean, this is kind of the same thing we always talk about with these young teams where you hope that you get in a situation where everybody stays healthy and you can continue to compete for a long time and you build for the future, yada, yada, yada. But if you put yourself in a position where you can just kind of mess around and win something, why not go try and win it? 
They don't even need to win the Central. I mean, they're only, I think, two and a half games back from wild card. Well, yeah, I mean, but like, I mean, really, in the in the if end, like, buy, if you're gonna yeah, buy, you're gonna try and win for the. I know, yeah, I know. Yeah. I'm just saying. Like, but you're they, right. They, they, I you're don't right. Even think it's a really discussion. They should just go for it. Yes. Well, me, well, now, that all depends well, on yeah. what you mean. Go for it. I mean, and there, there are. There, I mean, I know what you're saying, Casey. But there, there, there are different examples. Like the best example is a Trevor Bauer example. Okay, if you can somehow, some way, find a team that wants to get rid of somebody, somebody who's under a contract that really is a pretty good contract. So in other words, you're not trading for some guy that can be a free agent after you trade for him in three months. The Reds got Bauer, who was not pitching well at the time. He was having a tough year in Cleveland. He had had success, but he wasn't at the time. But the Reds knew that there was a good chance. The work ethic, all the rest of the stuff, he's not a very good teammate, but they knew his mental makeup uh, and his desire to be great was worth taking the chance on because you had, con- you had him under contract for the next year. So if the Reds are going to quote-unquote go for it, that's the kind of deal they're going to make, yeah. right? That's a- or a guy like, and this has been floated around a little bit, like a Raldis Chapman. Chapman's on, what, a $4 million deal this year? How would Aroldis Chapman look in your bullpen? Aroldis Chapman setting up Alexis Diaz yeah. makes yeah. any 20-year-old Reds fan just a little bit more excited. Aroldis Chapman was really the most exciting player we had in Cincinnati for there for a while, throwing 105 out of the pen. We can get him back on this team's with how this city feels right now. I think it'd be a lot of fun. But again, the price has to be right. I don't want us to get sped up trading for guys just because the central is bad. I mean, Nick Kirby put it in the chat, stay the course, stay the course, stay the course. I think that's the most important thing. I mean, we've killed the deadline these last two, three years to build this farm, to get these players to a point where hopefully the Reds no longer have these peaks and valleys. We're going to be a nice competitive team playing for the, you know, to win the NL Central year in and year out for a decade plus. And I think, you know, tearing up that farm system now to go get, you know, a starting pitcher on a two-month rental to, you know, try to win a, win a division and probably get pumped in the first round just like we did in 2020 I, you know, that's not high on my list. That doesn't appeal to me. I, I want to be a, you know, a competitive team, a franchise that's here to stay. And I think we set ourselves up to be in that position. But I don't think uh, – but I'm not, I'm not talking about a rental, though. Of course, I'm talking yeah. about somebody that maybe you get not, – not long-term, but two years. I would love you know, somebody, Or one more yeah. year. Uh, yeah, or at least – one more year. Because yeah. next year, in theory – Votto's $25 million off the books, right? Right. So you would think, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not going to say for sure about this because I don't know, but you would think that that $25 million, now some of it you're going you're, you're gonna to choose, to, you have to pay some guys in arbitration or you might have to pay, you know, whatever. My, but the point I'm making is that's a lot of free money. So you might be able to acquire, somebody brought up in the chat, a Shane Bieber. That, which is a lot like a, a Trevor Bauer deal, where he's got a good contract next year, right? Good pitcher, can help you next year, can help you try and win next year. I don't know. I've just always felt like, you know, I mean, look. And, 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 and I sound like the wrong guy on this deal because McLean has played well. De La Cruz has not been here a week, but has been just fantastic and extraordinarily exciting. Abbott has been unbelievable, and it's only two starts. 
But look, it takes a lot more than that to win, to really win. And I'm not talking about finishing 500 and winning the wild card and getting drilled in a one-game playoff or getting drilled in a three-game division series. I'm talking about winning, winning. Like we were talking about earlier with Ryan Lefevre. Yeah. I mean, this young Reds group, are they, I mean, are they more talented than that group of Bruce and Chapman and all these guys that came up at the same time that were on that 2012 team? That 2012 team was a damn good team now. They won 97 games. 97. And couldn't get out of the first round of the playoffs. So the point I'm making is, is that, you know, there comes a point where all of a sudden you can say, in theory, are they going to be good for a decade? Uh, a decade may be a stretch because some of these guys are going to become free agents and you see where they are in their career and whatever, right? You know, kind of like the Bengals. You can't pay them all. Not in Cincinnati. And that's getting way down the trail. But man, if you can find a way to get somebody who can help you the rest of this year, maybe you sneak in. But I agree with, with, uh, with Kirby, uh, Nick Kirby. You just got to stay the course for a while. And I think you need to be able to answer the question, what do we have for next year? And, and this is where the whole Votto thing, and, and I don't know why somebody, every, I, I don't know why every single time I say something that somebody may not like. And I said Votto's a Hall of Famer, but I don't understand it. It happened when I was a broadcaster. It happens to my dad all the time. There's no dislike for Joey Votto here. Guy's an unbelievable player. He's a smart guy. He's a fun guy. He's a cool guy. Just because somebody presents at least a question of an argument about something doesn't mean they're beating the guy up. It's a legitimate question. Asking about Todd Helton compared to Joey Votto is a legitimate question and a question that Hall of Fame voters have to answer. I am not one of them. But this whole Vado thing, they're in a tough spot this year. Now, he's still not hitting. I know he hit a home run down there, but he's hitting a buck 50, right? He's got like eight hits total down there this year at AAA in two different stints. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. But he's still Joey Vado. He's arguably the greatest offensive player in the history of the franchise. He's one of the top five players in the history of the franchise without a shadow of a doubt. The sentimentality of getting him back up here and getting him on the field to see Joey one more time, how does that affect you being able to answer the question at the end of the year, what do I have in Steer? What do I have in Encarnacion Strand? Right? Right. Pressure there to play him if he comes back. Absolutely. Well, absolutely. And I think... You talk about the Hall of Fame stuff. Joey Votto is one of the few guys, I'd argue, the best player in the city for a long period of time. And I think half the city still doesn't like him. I think it was, it's a personal thing. But as, you know, Casey said, you know, he's kind of tailed off the end of his career. He has grown significantly in what people think of him the past couple of years. He's been more fun. Yep. He's never stepped in front of a microphone before the past couple of years. He's been doing that more. The, the, the perception of him now has changed. It's a positive it's a positive perception of Joey Votto. Fans are going to want to see him. They're going to beg the, the Reds to put him in the lineups, and the Reds are going to put him in lineups. Now back to what you say. I don't know how that affects this roster because Joey Votto in this lineup is not going to help the team. 
It was going to hurt the team. Spencer Steer is a better player right now than Joey Votto. Strand is probably a better player right now than Joey Votto. So I don't know what that means in, 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 you know, in terms of who plays DH, what happens with the infield. Infield's already crowded, so I don't know. But there's absolutely a pressure that the Reds' front office is going to be playing Joey Votto. And I think Marty said it last week. You're paying him $25 million. He has to play. You can't bench him. So you have to play him. He has to be up here if he's, quote-unquote, healthy. Well, let me zero in on that and just ask you guys, because you're fans, you go to games, uh, and all of you are very young. You've seen Votto great. You've seen Votto not so good. Now we're seeing Votto injured, and we're seeing Votto in the last year. How would you feel as a Reds fan? And I'll go around the horn here. I'll start with you, Jacob. How do you feel if Votto comes back and is on the major league active roster and he's getting at bats for the big league team when you are still, Paul, as you point out, four back, three back, two and a half back. Now we're getting into July and August. I mean, you're right there. You're right there with 65, 70 games to go. How are you going to feel about are, are, are you going to be angry they play him? Or are you okay knowing that, well, maybe he's not the best guy we could put out there, but we're putting him out there because he's Joey Votto? Yes, I think is how I would answer that question. Yes? So he's put 20 years into being the face of this franchise, being a great player for 20 years. We just had a talk for 15, 20 minutes about whether or not he's a Hall of Famer. He definitely, without a shadow of a doubt, deserves, you know, home series, you know, farewell tour, standing ovation when he comes to the plate, all that stuff. He deserves it, and I want to give it to him. So I hope he's in the lineup at least a couple times, whatever. We get to July, and we're a handful of games out of first place. Joey Votto becomes a matchup DH. Like, if, if he can go out there and he can hit against, you know, right-handed pitching, sure, let him be the Kevin Newman of the mid-July Reds. He can DH against, you know, whoever and provide power, which this team needs, which he's been able to do. Um, so, yeah, I think there, there is a place for Joey Votto on this team that can help the team win. If he's our everyday first baseman and he's not playing like Joey Votto, based on what we've seen from Spencer Steer and what Christian Encarnacio Strand continues to show us in AAA, I have a hard time keeping him in the lineup. Let me ask you this, though. Like you guys have been saying, if they're not going to go all in at the deadline, you're, you're, you're saying you're staying the course. We're not going to try this year. Then why does it matter? Then you can play Joey, Well, right? the only reason it matters is because – um, for me is, I, I mean, I got to know who I got and where I got him and where I'm going to play him at the end of this year. I've got to have a plan in place that says, you know what? We love India. We're okay going to arbitration with him, but we're going to ask him, you don't have to say it publicly, but privately, we're going to go to India and say, we need you to move to the outfield. Okay. You go to steer and you say, you know what? Um, you were playing pretty good at third base. Pretty good. You're going back there. That's all you're going to do this winter is get ready to go back to third. You look at Encarnacion Strand, and you got to be able to say, you know what, this guy's ready. He's ready. Whether it's a first baseman, uh, which is his numbers have not been bad defensively down there. Um, and you say, well, offensively, I know he can get it done. Okay? If i got to DH him, okay, then what am I going to do at first? Is Steer going to be the guy? And then what am I going to do at third? i got to be able to have the answer to all of those questions Going into my offseason. So, Paul, would you be upset if Votto's getting A-Bs and the team's two and a half back in August? 
No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily be upset about it. I would be upset if they put him in there in place of somebody like a Christian Encarnacion Strand who had shown. If say Joey can't come back till then, or say he's extending himself, and you start to you pull up Encarnacion Strand, he plays well, but you say Ah, Votto's on the books. Let's slot Votto in and see if he can be more consistent so you avoid that slump after the league adjusting Carnacion Strand. That's where I'd be a little tentative about it. I, I have two, two points on this, though. I, I think one, just from an overarching perspective, it's nice to know. Like, we knew if, if you had followed the team, you know, somebody like Nick Kirby, who has been on this for years and, and been following every move as closely as, you know, and, and you've been around it too, Tom, where – you have the trust of a guy like Nick Kroll now that you, you can trust him to make the right. Without a doubt. You, you can trust him to make the right decision. You're not sitting here in an inept uh, front office perspective where you're going to see him make a move for a, a starting pitcher or whoever it might be. You're going to trust him to make the right decision on whatever this is and potentially having discussions of what they want to do with Joey Votto when he comes up. You know, I see Trace putting it in the lineup about – uh, or putting putting in the chat about what the numbers are in AAA. I take a little bit of that with a grain of salt because I, I mentioned this way back in the beginning of the season where I think Joey had struck out like 20, 20 times in his first 20-some at-bats or yep. whatever. You know, I, I'm not watching one single at-bat that Joey Votto was putting together at AAA. They, those could be true numbers. But Joey Votto's also got a, a very weird baseball brain in the sense of he could be down there doing stuff with his swing. He could be fixing things. He could be trying something new that he has to adjust to because of his injury. It's a little tough for me to read into those numbers as true numbers until we get him up here into the, but if he goes eight, 10, 12 games and he's two, uh, two for 35, you're not going to just keep trotting him out there. If the reds are three back, you're not going to do that for nostalgia purposes. Well, you know, the thing is, is, I mean, you bring up a great point there, but, and, and to, to, to make sure everybody understands, I think I alluded to it earlier. We're talking about Votto's numbers at AAA this year, and Paul just brought him back up again. This is his second stint down there, and there was about a month and a half in between where he's not been down there. He just went back down there last prior to last weekend. So, you know, Paul's right. The, the, the first stint, so when you read what his overall stats are, they're going to show you what he did in his first stint and his second stint combined and how they all add up to a triple a season for Louisville so you, the first stint just throw him out you got to pay attention on what he's doing now now for for all the things you point out about Vado and you're you're spot on oh boy we're almost out of time we are out of time we're, we're talking oh, we're all right we're talking here's what I but but here's the thing and we'll wrap it up um is that Vado is an extremely smart guy he does a lot of what Paul alluded to of working on something. You know, we've seen him change his entire approach. He'll come in one year saying he wants to hit more home runs. He'll come in another year saying he just wants to get on base more. Um, you know, he, he's been all over the map, and it's worked. Great for a long time. But he's a smart enough guy to know the situation. He knows all these things we're talking about. And he's the last guy in the world that wants to go out there and be given playing time based on what he's done, not who he is now. Okay? He knows the Reds are four games out of first. Who knows where they're going to be by the time he's able to come back up? 
he needs to show some numbers down there. Something. You can't bring up a guy hitting a buck 40. No. You can bring up a guy hitting 240. 240 is not where you want to be. But for him to go from 140 to 240, he's going to have to rake for about a week and a half. Right? Yeah. So, Vado knows. I know we're getting way ahead of ourselves and worrying about this stuff. And, you know, but, it, but, but these are the things that go through the minds of Nick Crawl and all the Reds people, even the business side people. Because there is a business side to Vado coming back and for the fans to be able to see him play again one more time, right? And, and the last thing, too, with that is how many times have we sat here as Reds fans and talked about how much we like Joey Votto and appreciate what, he, what he's done for the organization and the franchise over the years and getting them through some of those bad years and everything else and being one of the actual highlights of this team for a long time. Well, maybe you trade him to a contender at the end of his career so he can go win a ring or at least compete for a ring. I'm not saying that the Reds are competing for a ring, but for the first time in a while... The Reds in a long season, 2020, of course, was a, a playoff team. And then 2021, they were good, but they sold off. Feels like for the first time in a while now, you have a, a team that Joey Votto can come up and be a part of and really maybe be a part of something even from a leadership perspective, whatever it might be, yep. that you're not just trading him away to the Dodgers on a ring chasing deal just to go and, and say, ah, it's okay, you know, Joey, you did a lot for us, but end of your career, go get yourself a ring. That's seems like that door is, has closed. And now, now you have a situation where maybe you bring him up and the Reds are kind of messing around here with the NL Central. They sure are. Casey, what were you going to say? All I was going to say is pretty much what Trace had already mentioned. Um, and what a bat you're taking away. Like, the development is more important for this team than <sighs> – dare I say, honoring a guy that's been part of your franchise and been one of your best players in your franchise because it's all about winning, right? That's that's all fans care about. That's all organizations care about. And there's other ways to honor those guys than just letting them play one last time at home, which I do think they should do. I don't know how they do it. I don't know if it's a series or if it's just one game. I do think they should do something, but... You can't just have him up here just to have him up here for the rest of the season when he's not playing well. He's not batting well. He's – I hate to say it, but there is a serious chance that we might not see him play at a high enough level to come back. You know what I'm saying? Yep, like yep. There, there, There's yep. that serious possibility. And, uh, you know, I – my mindset is win. What does it take to win? Agreed. And how do you learn how to win? You got to make the tough choices. So yeah. this would be a tough choice for them, but I just can't see them bringing up Votto and replacing that batting spot or that starting spot with, you know, when you got CES coming up. You know, well, if he comes up, I mean, yeah. he's not here yet, but you know, the, he's 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 certainly making a case to come up. All right, Bucks lunch is next. Reed is coming in as soon as we kick this to our infomercial. Okay. Are we ready to kick Oh, wait, 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 wait. We do have a cherry on top. We do? We do. Presented by United yeah. Dairy Farmers. Here we yep. go. We've run long today. Our, our, uh, oh, you got to set this up. A brand, uh, 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 Jacob, set this up. 
So you saw stop the putt. It, stop it here real quick before we run the video. Okay. You saw the putt earlier in the show to yep. win the Canadian Open. Nick Taylor. Nick Taylor. And this is the celebration there at the end. Well, a fellow Canadian golfer decides to run on spraying champagne to celebrate the victory. The security thinks that it's a fan and proceeds to <laughs> absolutely demolish him out of the shot here. Adam Hadwin. Boom. <laughs> See ya. Look at that form. Get him out. What a Drives him down what a at the 32. And look at the caddy. He's like, wait a minute. <laughs> what a I know that dude. A plus form. That's teaching tape at fall camp this summer, Tom. Well, no doubt. Look at that. Head, head up, up. Head up. Head up. Head up. Wrap around. The Drive. Through That's the perfect. body. Feet I mean, keep moving. Finish. Look finish. at the look at this. Finish. Look at the fall through. Unbelievable. That, that's as good as it gets right there. That's how they teach it. Down in Alabama. Absolutely. Nick Saban, leader of men. Leader of men. Undisputed. Leader, leader of, men. of men. That's right. All right, boys. Uh, thank you very much to all. Jacob, thank you. Casey, great to have you back. Thank you, Tom. You're welcome, buddy. You're welcome. You're welcome. Paulie. Great job. Thanks, Tom. All right. Time for box lunch. Here we go.